Welcome, everyone, to another edition on this Sunday night, December 5th, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, in this time slot last night, we attempted something that has never been done, as far as I know, on this program, if not in the world, ever been done before. We attempted using hyperdimensional codes and frequencies and geometry and ratios to literally open hailing frequencies with a one-time interstellar visitor to the solar system. As you know, several years ago, a little object called a muamua, named by NASA, which when you translate it from Hawaiian means scout. Actually, there's a more lengthy translation that I'll get to in a few minutes. Anyway, it passed through the solar system, took a right-hand turn, and is now leaving in the direction of Pegasus, which is a constellation uh, well-known to amateur astronomers, never to return because it, it came in and departed in excess of the escape velocity of the solar system, which is how we know it was our first mainstream science-recorded interstellar visitor. Well, there have been a lot of theories floating around in the ether, particularly those uh, presented by ourselves some years ago, right after uh, Muamua hove into view, as well as a major Harvard astronomer named uh, uh, Dr. Abby Loeb, who are portending to look at the data around Muamua and to construct a model which says it was not a natural object, that in fact, it was some kind of artificial sentinel, bracewell probe, or, in NASA's parlance, a scout. Anyway, last night we tried, for the first time, a major transmission experiment as a run-up to a major weekend of communications we're planning on Christmas weekend. Christmas Eve, Christmas night, and on the night after Christmas, the 26th. Well, we set up our experiment with the courtesy of Dr. Um, I'm sorry, not Dr. Um, David Sarita and uh, Jimmy. Uh, um, I'm blanking on Jimmy's last name. Um, and we um, had no idea if we were going to get anything. In fact, we did. And we got something so extraordinary that we're going to take the first half hour or so of tonight's program as a prelude to an update on what's going on vis-a-vis the UFO UAP issue uh, Blanchett, Blanchett, Jimmy Blanchett. There are times when the mind just kind of goes cattywampus. Anyway, um, as, as a kind of a backdrop to what we're going to talk about in terms of official reactions in Washington, uh, the Congress, the Senate, a certain key senator, the Pentagon, you know, the whole in crowd in Washington are stumbling over themselves trying to right the ship after 70 plus years of dissembling on this, you know, idea that we are not alone. And uh, it's kind of amusing in one sense because uh, the excuses are flying thick and fast and the uh, forgets, forget-me-nots of history are strewn all over our path. And we're going to get into all of that detail in the uh, two and a half hours of the show. But I wanted to start with um, uh, David Sarita back tonight. And so without further ado, let me give you a, 
kind of a thumbnail sketch on who David is. David is a citizen scientist. He is, uh, like myself, a generalist. He has been working for decades um, in the vineyards trying to figure out what the heck involving all this is really going on. I mean, he has a background in in, uh, world religions, meditation, philosophy, science, both Western and what you would call fringe, physics, photography, screenwriting. I mean, he is a generalist. He's appeared, by the way, we, we turn out to be alums about the same time frame when I was doing uh, uh, Coast to Coast with Art and uh, George Norrie. Uh, David was also on those shows. He's done Jimmy Church and John Wells. He even was apparently uh, uh, interviewed or was interviewed by Shirley MacLaine. I have a very weird, interesting little Shirley MacLaine story when Robert and I were invited to dinner in Santa Fe uh, with Shirley MacLaine. And... Um, <laughs> She, she she basically came off as my mother. It's so amusing. Anyway, um, David uh, is one of the two uh, investigators who spearheaded our efforts last night to send a regular three-dimensional set of radio transmissions at two key frequencies, 144.1 megahertz. A hertz is one cycle per second, so a megahertz is a million cycles per second right in the uh, uh, UHF band. And another simultaneous transmission um, at 432 megahertz. And these numbers were not chosen at random. They were specifically picked because they are, in fact, key hyperdimensional frequencies that show up in the uh, hyperdimensional physics model. And that's why we chose them. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that David will go through. Well, as we're sending our transmissions last night, and what I want to do is I want to refer everyone now to the Other Side of Midnight uh, guest page. The way you get there is you go to theothersideofmidnight.com. You click on uh, the banner at the top, which basically says, uh, let me read it here. It says, um, with brilliant red on, on black and white, the remarkably rapid revolution going on in Washington over UFOs. And believe me, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that is going to make you really pay attention. So right under there, you see a, uh, a fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you down to my items. Item number one, we're monitoring La Palma as usual. You may have heard, and I didn't get the news in time to have it posted, but Cynthia may be able to do that during the show. Uh, In addition to La Palma, remember I mentioned last night that there appeared to be a kind of a rush of volcanic eruptions all around the world that have been dormant for some time? Uh, Well, La Palma's not the only one. There was a major volcano in Indonesia, which has now blown its stack and apparently uh, has killed a lot of people. I don't I, you know, the, the, the count is still going up. So again, there appears to be some kind of planetary-wide uh, geophysical activity, which again goes along with the model that as the physics changes, as the background energy rises, these uh, geophysical and meteorological events are going to occur more frequently. I mean, look, we've got a blizzard in Hawaii tonight with 100-mile-an-hour winds which was part of our news uh, 
uh, announcements last night. Okay, item number two. This now is where things get really interesting. As I said, if you want to click on that, this is a really amazing three-dimensional color animation prepared by NASA, by the Hubble Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore. Came out very shortly after Oumuamua's appearance. It shows you in three-dimensional exquisite animation the the orbital trajectory of this object, this mysterious object, which came plummeting toward the solar system at about a 33-degree tetrahedral angle, which was my first indication that it wasn't natural. And then as it passed around the sun, made a kind of a screaming uh, right-hand turn um, and left in the direction of the constellation of Pegasus, the great square, uh, where, by the way, the first known exoplanet was discovered back in 1995. Remember when Ted Koppel on Nightline actually did a live show? Keith will remember that because it was really very unusual that uh, Koppel would send a crew to Boston to the Harvard College Observatory, where, of course, you couldn't see the the planet around uh, uh, 51 Pegasi, but they spent the half-hour nightline talking about the import and the impact and the implications of discovery of the first known extraterrestrial planet outside the solar system. So Pegasus, part of our developing gestalt around this entire subject. Anyway, as this object came through, it did something after it uh, rounded the sun that made everybody sit up, us included, and it's probably one of the key reasons why Abby Loeb, remember the former director of the Harvard College Observatory, just like decades previous, Donald Menzel was the director of the Harvard College Observatory. And those of us, uh, uh, Joe Bookman, I think will will have some things to say about uh, Donald Menzel. Anyway, Abby Loeb in that chair was the first academic pose, other than ourselves sitting here on the other side of midnight, uh, about two years earlier, that Oumuamua, in fact, could have been an artificial construct of some kind, perhaps, perchance, what would be known in the literature as a Bracewell probe. And we'll get into what that is when we uh, actually uh, begin our conversation. Anyway, what made it so extraordinarily weird, and the reason that Loeb got really focused on the potential artificial nature of uh, Oumuamua, is because as it left the solar system, instead of doing what every other object normally does, which is to slow down, you know, I tossed a ball into the air, it fell to Earth, I know not where, but it slowed down before it fell back. In this case, Oumuamua did not slow down according to the timeless Newtonian physics of all orbiting objects in the galaxy, in the universe. Instead, it accelerated by about 10%, which is impossible unless there is something really wondrous, the anomalous, going on. Now, the mainstream said, oh, well, it's really easily explainable. It's just a comet. It's a dead comet around the sun, caused it to heat, and the heating caused gases to escape. The gases, you know, action, reaction, Newton's third law, pushed it in different directions, accelerating it away from the sun. Totally explicable. Except, 
every major observatory on the planet, from Keck to Saratololo to Hubble itself in orbit, as they did deep, deep scans of Oumuamua, which was never more than a little tiny flickering point of light in even the biggest telescope. All the data that we have was from an unresolved below pixel resolution twink, as my grandmother would have said. And all these scientific inferences were based on analysis of that tiny pulsating point of light. Why was it pulsating? Because of Muamua, it turned out, was tumbling. It was rotating chaotically with a period of about eight hours. Uh, we may get into later in the morning some of the physics of why I think that was taking place. But anyway, back to the anomalous motion. If, in fact, all these observations, which zeroed in during those few, you know, couple weeks when Oumuamua was within a few million miles of the Earth, something like 20 million miles, and they got really good scans, spectroscopic and deep imaging, et cetera, et cetera, there was not a trace of a comet-like halo or jetting material or dust or anything associated with what would be called conventional outgassing producing a rocket-like effect. So you had, in essence, a dark, solid object, which, by the way, from the light curves, turned out to be 10 times brighter than any natural object ever photographed by any astronomical observatory on Earth ever before in interplanetary or interstellar space, 10 times brighter it put it up there in the, in the reflectivity range of brilliant, polished aluminum. Can you say hull plating, anyone? Anyway, so this object, which we never saw, all this data is from the light curve analysis, was accelerating as it left the sun. Now, I, unlike Abby Loeb, am privy to other physics, including the work of my dear departed physicist friend, Bruce De Palma. Back in the 1970s, Bruce De Palma, I showed the graph last night, if you want to go and take a look. He designed two steel pinballs simultaneously into the air in an arc in front of a gridded screen. And then he took time-lapse stroboscopic images, click, 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 so he would get the trajectory and measure the relative velocity of one of the balls that was not spinning compared to the simultaneous ball just a few inches away going up in the same arc, which was spinning at like 27,000 times per minute. I mean, really spinning. And what he discovered, which was stunning and shocking and violates everything we think we know about conventional physics, is that the spinning ball rose faster. It was accelerating in Earth's gravity field, remember up is up and down is down, and then as it reached the top of the arc, it fell back toward the, the laboratory floor faster than the non-spinning ball. This, of course, is what I believe accounts for Oumuamua's bizarre anomalous acceleration. It was an active dimensional object under influence of the field the HD field around the solar system, powered mainly by the sun, the huge 
spinning mass in the center of the system. And of course, mainstream physicists, if they can't see cometary jetting, they will have no clue as to why this object, in fact, could behave so anomalously. Now, to his credit, Loeb came up with a plausible, possible mainstream explanation, along with his uh, co-author, whose name escapes me. And in their published paper, they think that Oumuamua is basically a big, flat, aluminized solar sail, and it's now tumbling. The problem is that on that model, the rotation rate should change, as well as with the outgassing model, because you can never in nature have something so perfect that the jetting would go through the center of mass, the center of gravity of a tumbling object in space, a natural you know, cometary nucleus, let's say. The fact is that during all the observations until Oumuamua dwindled to a point of light beyond the reach of even the world's largest telescopes, like the Keck, the rotation period did not change, which means if it was being impelled by solar radiation pressure, there should have been changes in the rotation as well as the acceleration. So we are, we are like in the Sherlock Holmes position when you have eliminated the possible, you got to go for the impossible. And that is that a muamua was some kind of extraordinary artificial object which rounded the sun, remained totally silent. There was an actual mainstream listening effort uh, bankrolled by the Breakthrough Listening Project, which borrowed, uh, actually they rented, the Green Bank Radio Telescope uh, in West Virginia, 140-foot dish, and they listened on many different frequencies. They heard nothing. And what was really remarkable when I'm looking at all this is that it never occurred to them, or maybe it did and they kind of freaked out and decided not to, it never occurred to them to try to send its signals. They did not send any information to a muamua. So like the sentinel in Arthur Clarke's story about the object on the moon that when it received signals, it suddenly came alive and began to broadcast, which was the basis of 2001 Space Odyssey. They never sent a signal. They just listened. And, of course, it was absolutely silent. Last night, for the first time that I know, we, with the help of David Sarita and Jimmy uh, – um, uh, uh, why am I blanking on Jimmy's last name? It's very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. Um, anyway, um, we sent, for the first time, radio signals coded – in the same mathematics, uh, bachelet. Sorry, sorry. You know, I'm, I'm obviously my 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 mind is going tonight. It's I I did not get much sleep. I got to say that after last night's extraordinary developments, I did not get a lot of sleep, and neither did David Sarita. So, without further ado, let me go to uh, our first guest of the evening, David Sarita from Canada, somewhere north on the plains of Alberta of of Iowa in Canada, who spent all night doing the analysis we're going to be talking about. And boy, did we get some amazing data from this test experiment. David, you're on the air. Fantastic lead in there, Richard. It's, um, I mean, we've, we've, this is our third um, program in, in this series 
on this idea of signaling a muamua, and it, it it starts with Jimmy Blanchett's discovery of a phenomenon not unlike what Tesla and Marconi discovered as possible extraterrestrial signaling or interference in the early days of radio, this anomalous kind of what we call chirping. Um, it was happening at 144.1 megahertz for Jimmy. Actually, as Amumu was coming in in 2017 is when the phenomena started for Jimmy Blanchett, and that may or may not be a coincidence. So last night, we decided, and we planned this, to do our first test to send a series of tones. And it reminds me of that scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the, the, the UFOs meet the military on the dark side, what they call the dark side of the moon, which was really the back of Devil's Tower, Wyoming, where they start signaling each other a series of tones. Are you like, talking about this? Yeah. So dark side of the moon. what we did last night... Um, Just for those who don't remember. <laughs> it's what we did last night. Was something very similar. Now, you can play our tones, right? Yeah, I'll play, I mean, the first, you know, 30 seconds or so of what we sent Amuamua last night. Now, these tones were sent on a carrier wave of 144.1 megahertz and alternatively, 432 megahertz as the carrier wave, but these tones are audible. Well, this was simultaneous, simulcasting on these two frequencies, right? Right. Well, no, he did it alternately. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. These are our tones sent last night. Yeah. So anyway, those tones, they, they, they are one golden ratio proportion to each other. So we sent those out last night. Amuamua was 3.69 hours away at the speed of light. So that's about how long it took for a speed of light signal to reach them, although we believe there's a faster-than-light function in the way we're doing this. And we have our handheld radios tuned to receive at those two frequencies. And I demonstrated last night on your show how my radio started this phenomenal chirping sound, which sounds kind of like language. It sounds like birds chirping. And then it stopped. And then I want to point out that for the last eight or nine months that I've been working with Jimmy Blanchett and we've been sending signals to each one of the inner planets, I should say, the the chirping sound is much quicker and much more aggressive, and it tends to happen within moments of the transmission. And when it only seems to happen within about a radius of 20 feet of where the transmission took place, so my office 
where I am now is 40 feet from my house. There's no Wi-Fi in here. My internet is on Ethernet. I have no background radiation checked on my tri-field meter in radio frequency and magnetic mode. So what we're experiencing has nothing to do with any type of electromagnetic interference. When the chirping happens on the radio, there is no RF activity up to 8 gigahertz checked on a meter. So it has nothing to do with radio frequency interference. So what happened last night? So wait, wait, let let me get this straight. Some other physics, demonstrably, measurably, is activating the radios like a, like a, like an amplifier speaker system like a, like a like a, like a hi-fi but the radio itself is not really being used as a radio it's merely a transducer to to receive and to then broadcast to your ear these signals that are returning in far in excess of the speed of light yes and they're they're not they my radio frequency meter shows no activity at all no em waves in the radio spectrum no there's nothing and this this meter is sensitive up to eight gigahertz which is extremely high and of course it's much higher than the transmission because the gigahertz is a billion hertz yep so so what happens what i did last night now i've done this test many times with jimmy where i take my radios in the house i tune them to the transmitting frequency so 144.1 and i had another radio at 432 i turn them on to receive and i did this last summer they're quiet all night they only make noise when i bring them back into my office where i did the transmissions so last night they started chirping after our show i went in and i made a few videos of the chirping and it was really incredible what, what what I discovered because what I did is made audio recordings of the chirping within a t- holding up a frequency meter to give me digital readouts of the frequency of each chirp. And wow. to, to my astonishment, it was literally like human words and languages. There were dozens of frequency numbers flashing really, really quickly to which I was able to capture a few numbers and write them down and do some math. But what got more amazing is when you cued me, Richard, to slow it down. So I took the audio into Final Cut Pro editing bay, into the audio bay, and I slowed it down to 10% and I zoomed in on the waveforms, the actual waveforms. Now, I want to point out at the same time, and these, these are items that are up on your site right now, Item number one is during the transmission. Now, let me tell folks again how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, which has that beautiful picture of the Capitol with a flying saucer poised in front of it with uh, Steve and and, uh, uh, Joe's name down at the bottom. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Click right under the banner on the guest page. You will see fast links to items. Click on David's items, and that will take you to his section of radio with pictures and you're going to see some amazing data that is just literally uh out of the oven a few hours old yeah and i don't want to speed through this because it's no no so- no no no. We, we we can go past the break i mean this okay this so, is why we're here you know okay so item number one are close-ups of uap ufos that appeared between the camera at jimmy's antenna in in uh in northern arizona and a muamua 
So we were transmitting in the direction of Oumu. Yeah, hang on a sec. If, 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 if you go to my section, which is right above David's, there's a wide-angle shot from uh, Jimmy's antenna with a, with a bright object circled. The bright object is a UAP UFO. The objects in the front are the antenna. It's aimed toward Pegasus. Oumuamua is right there in the background. So whatever kept – and it kept appearing. We, we had dozens of these sightings recorded on video by Blanchett during the show, during the three hours. And there's so much stuff to go through that it – and it has to – a human has to go through it that you, you can't automate this. And then below that, number four, I've got an enlargement of, of one of the objects that appeared. Right. So these are not – these are not uh, – uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? The, these are not – you know, speckles in the sky. They're not, uh, you know, scintillation of stars. They're, in fact, something anomalous seen above the antenna hovering, literally, you know, uh, photobombing the experiment that underwent for three hours during the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we'll come back in a few moments with the rest of the debrief on last night's historic a Muamua experiment. Do not touch that dial. My background education is in uh, evidence-based medicine and research methods out of the University of Toronto. Graduate school there, then I went on to Oxford in evidence-based medicine. And then on to McMaster, my doctorate and postdoc in evidence-based medicine. I also did some certificate program at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in biological warfare, weaponization of pathogen in 2001. Basically, how you would take viruses, bacteria, etc., any type of pathogen, in, and weaponize them, put them on a missile to use them for nefarious means. And I wanted to learn, as an epidemiologist, in case my city or my country, just to understand how it works and if that can be done. I was working as a what WHO, Pan American Health, mid 2019. And then we started to get these cases out of Italy in January, February. These, these images on the television of people dropping dead. I'm speaking to you honestly, as a scientist, but openly. Those images out of China were fake. That was part of this game, scared the world. At that time, WHO asked me to change my position and to become a pandemic advisor to them because they were the global agency and they didn't know what was going on. Because of my training in evidence-based medicine and uh, research methods in clinical epidemiology, they wanted me to help them understand what was coming out of China and Italy. So I actually was connected to WHO and PAHO in the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And a lot of their messaging was from me. People like me behind the scenes, we took a lot of beating from the press and hammering 
because we were calling for a balanced age-risk stratified approach. Damage had already been done by Fauci and Brooks. It was Fauci and Brooks' lockdowns that harmed America, killed people. Many people died in America because of their lockdowns. It was Fauci refusal to admit and to recognize the potency of early outpatient treatment. But the groups I work with now, like Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, etc., we champion early treatment and we have, you know, the treatment plans and stuff where you treat the infected high-risk person early, prevent hospitalization and death. Fauci and they damaged us in that regard. They will refuse to recognize the antivirals. We have estimates now of the 750,000 Americans, quote-unquote, who may have died from COVID. About 700,000 will be alive today, 90%. Oh. And that's our math when we look at the data. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans died because of the NIH and the CDC refusal to allow doctors to prescribe early outpatient treatment. I have many, I know many doctors, many of them across America, right now fighting their state boards and stuff for their licenses. Their licenses have been stopped or pulled. They're threatened with being fired because they prescribed early treatment that was helping their patients. I'm Dr. Paul Alexander, and uh, I have really thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to be on the other side of the news because it has shown me to be one of the forums that's probably one of the only forums that allows one to be fully expressive and to, uh, and to share how they really feel about the events um, in the hopes of sharing with a larger audience and an exchange of ideas so that people can become much more informed and understand the situation around them for their own decision-making. So I am very thankful of this opportunity for the other side of the news. back everyone to the other side of midnight to be distinguished from the other side of the news here on this Sunday night December 5th and uh, our guest uh, this evening the first guest of the of the evening for an extraordinarily interesting conversation is David Sarita who is describing the methodology following the extraordinary events the response events to our pioneering efforts to communicate through mainstream radio technology with a distant interstellar visitor known by NASA as Amuamua, a scout. And David, you please pick it up there because this is, this is riveting. This is, this is like beyond our wildest dreams, except I, I, I hope something would happen. I didn't think we'd have people showing up, and I say people inclusively, literally over the antenna, posing, doing selfies, in front of the antenna aimed toward Muamua, which is invisible billions of miles away behind them in the dark. And I really didn't expect that we would get 
detailed radio frequency communications that ultimately, if we work at it seriously over the next several days till next weekend, we might actually be able to decode. So please continue. Okay, first I want to just point out that in science you always establish background first, right? So you have what is like your your background radiation or, for example, with COVID pneumonia, you would want to know your what is your background worldwide pneumonia death toll and how high are you above background. So when when Jimmy and I have been doing this experiment and running his cameras, which are video cameras sensitive to low light, nighttime, of his antenna pointed in the direction of a transmission, we'd be lucky to get one of these things to show up. Last night, I lost count at <laughs> over seven of them. And Lucky seven. Tetrahedral seven. Typical video was running 30 frames a second at nighttime, probably 15 or, you know, 12. And when, when an image on a video captures something that's moving incredibly fast, and, and the fastest data we have from Kevin Day, the radar operator on the USS Princeton, he stated this on Netflix at the end, and nobody was paying attention. And so did uh, Commander David Fravor confirm this that a UAP jumps 60 miles in one second. Now, 60 miles a second is 216,000 miles per hour. So you're, you're even f- way, way faster than a meteorite, and you're certainly faster than a jet that peaks at 2,500 miles an hour. So mm. forget Mach 3 and 5 and the media and all that stuff. So if these things in front of Jimmy's camera between the antenna and the muamua were moving at any velocity, even at 30 frames a second, they would be blurred streaks or, or not even visible at all. Because when a solid object is moving at any velocity at night, you won't really see anything unless it's a meteor skimming the top of the atmosphere and creating a meteoric burn. So these things exactly are posing in standstill mode. And you can see the image on the top. If you blow that up really big, you'll see a point of light at the bottom tip. So this thing has shadowing. This is David's number one, 1A. 1A. It has curved surfaces. It's not a smear because a smear would just be a smudge mark. It has structure. And although you're looking at some pixels at this level, it it is not moving by and streaking. So it's not meteoric. No, it's posing. It's posing. Now, when you go to the second image, 1B, you'll see, you know, literally polygonal angles in, in, in its geometry. It, yep. It's almost like a, like a crescent with polygonal angles, one, two, three, four. So that would probably be an eight-sided polygon if you could see the other sides. And again, so hang on, hang on. If, if, if we're assuming a kind of a standard UFO size, 30 feet, 40 feet, something like that, kind of like the beam ship that uh, the Lazar talked about, these objects were literally hovering just above the antenna to be resolved on the video that Jimmy was shooting with that low light level camera looking up through the antenna at the target. Yeah, and, and this warrants, by the way, a much better camera. We're looking for a benefactor to get us about a $5,000 camera so we can get better resolution of these things. So the fact that we had a lot of these things 
appear during the transmissions last night is record-breaking against our background of the same ex- a type of experiment setup. So that means we were really peaking. And Oumuamua is 3.69 hours away at the speed of radio, which is the speed of light. So that was exciting enough. But then when I went into the house, and again, my background is when I bring the radios within 20 feet away of my transmission area, they are dead quiet in receiving mode because, one, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm just north of northern Idaho in the region of the Kootenays in British Columbia. And there is zero activity in these radios at night. So when there, there's two videos there that says um, there's response two, which is a little bit longer. And in, in these responses, I had one radio on the left in the video is tuned to 144.1, which is where I got most of my activity. And then on the radio on the right is tuned to 432. I got a completely different type of response, but I never got it on video it does remind me of what true fast radio bursts sound like, the radio on 432. So what I did... So wait a minute. I, you have two radios sitting side by side, and yeah, they're the responding video. differently. Oh, no. The radio on the right is... I never get it responding on video, but it did... No, respond. no, no, no. Forget I, the video. You're just sitting there yeah. watching them. Both radios are activating. The one on the left, the lower frequency... 144.1 is chattering away like a like a berserk monkey. The one on the right, tuned to the higher frequency, 432, you get intermittent signals, but they're side by side in essence, and they're totally different signals. So if it was random interference coming from somewhere in the room or in background, it should be it should be the same. They shouldn't be different. Well, yeah, no. so interference, for one, doesn't show up on my tri-field meter. Again, there is no magnetic field detectable, and there's no radio frequencies detectable in background. So whatever is causing this on the radio has nothing to do with radio interference or any EMF. So then what I did, Richard, is I took the audio and brought it into the editing bay and I looked at the wave structure. So if you go to item number three, waveform analysis of chirp, mm. and click on that image so it's nice and big. Now, I've, I look at waveforms. I've been editing audio and video for 25 years. And I can tell you when you look at, like, if, if they were sending back a repeatable mechanistic tone... A, a tone is a single point frequency, and therefore the waveform just repeats itself perfectly every single time. Now, if you look at this image, like I'm looking at right now, it's stereo. You'll look at each bundle of waves have totally different structure. Each of the six blips are going by in like one second. All six of these are going by and did it just like that. But... Each one of them is it has totally different wave structure, and that's not what um, single point frequencies look like at all. And in fact, if you look at the bottom row, which is the stereo of the upper row, you'll see also they're completely unique. And the only thing that looks like this is language. So mm. if I have 
a frequency meter in front of me and I start talking and I say dog, cat, you know, Doug, Bob, a word is a complex series of tones, therefore frequencies. So I was writing down all these frequencies that were happening so fast when the chirping was going on last night. And, and you gave me the idea to slow it down, slow the audio down to see what it sounds like, because that might give us an idea that possibly there is what's called time dilation going on here where yep. the chirps are coming in from a much um, more dilated time perspective than ours. So therefore they're happening way faster than our brain can process them. But what we do know is that these are not tonal interference patterns because they don't look anything like this. This is what words look like or or voices. So I'm going to play. Well, for I, you. I think the technical term is phonemes. Phonemes. There you go. Phonetics. So yeah. If you click on, there's two videos that I put, which I really urge people to watch because when you watch these videos, you're going to really see what's going on. But just listen to what this sounds like. The chirping sounds like at 10, percent and you'll you'll hear. You know that scene in in um in the contact with Jody Foster and the the blind guy is listening and he's saying I I can hear structure in those waves like there's structure in there which means which means this isn't just radio frequencies there's real data this is in there so cool David and another thing that's interesting if you if you read Richard Feynman's Strange Theory of Light and Matter and you understand how the difference between repeatable, reliable, quantifiable, meaning mathematically quantifiable, relies on repetition of consistent phenomena. The one thing that behaves randomly in the universe is consciousness, human language, and even human behavior, monkey behavior, were really random. And what Feynman found is the behavior of photons in the presence of consciousness behaved so randomly he could not mathematically quantify it now when i look at my graph of these these dashes and these blobs of wave structures the distance between each one of them is slightly slightly different which again shows randomness had they been had they ah. been measurable wave peaks because i've got a lot of them i i mean you're only looking at one set of <laughs> of uh, five numbers here or five blips. You were up all night doing this and all day? I was up all night doing this. So listen to this. This reminds me of the movie Arrival. It's, it's kind of spooky, but this is what it sounds like slowed down. So just get ready for this. You see how the duration on that last one was longer? It sounded and, like and a double, a double. Yeah, well, again, look at this, the, the five blobs at the top. The last one was the last blob, and it's a little bit longer than the other ones. But again, look at the, all the little lines, which are the wave peaks and valleys. They're all different. And it, 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 this, is, this is tonal language. And, and the fact that we're slowing it down doesn't change anything. It's the same data, but it's hitting you slower and, and when you look at the structure, you go, this is not radio interference, because that's not what radio interference looks like as a waveform. This is language. And therefore, I think 
I know what to do next. I, I have a, I've, I've made six videos of these chirps. And when I look at the total, you know, like two minute piece of video audio, I can measure the intervals where there's silence and then where it starts up again. I have bursts of just one burst. I have the number three, so I'll have three quick bursts. I'll see sixes. I see a lot of sixes, by the way. And inside of each burst are multiple frequencies hitting us within a fraction of a second. You do know that multiple frequencies that are all different numbers in a tiny fraction of a second doesn't exist anywhere except language and music. There's, in fact, more in language than music because music, you're plucking a guitar, hitting a piano, those are definable frequencies. But when you see a single little clump and you look at all the lines going up and down in each clump and they're all different lengths, that means every one of those is a different frequency. So there might be as many as 100 different frequencies in each clump. And nothing does that. Nothing does that except language. So even a bird chirping has phenomenal structure and different frequencies within a single chirp. But technology doesn't look like this at all. doesn't Mm. look like this. And so therefore, I deduct already that this is some kind of language. And and this is what Tesla and Marconi saw coming in on their radios in the early days of radio that frankly scared Tesla because he didn't know what it was. And and they're able to interface with our our radio waves, in, 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 our, our radio communication devices in a way that we don't – no one's ever spent any money and time on this. Nobody's ever done it. So – I'm I'm immensely excited about this. I really think it it begs for research, serious research. I, I know how to do this. It's gonna take a lot of time, but And funding. Let's and be funding. right out there. It needs funding. For instance, if we had really high quality color cameras photographing these things, we now know, you know, it's that old line from the movie, if you build it, they will come. We know how to bring them into video. We just need the right equipment to get really high-resolution imaging of whatever craft are showing up. Yeah, exactly. So just like like um, Avi Loeb is doing now, he's setting up these detectors all over the planet. Yeah, Project Galileo. It, Project Galileo. But, but he, what nobody's doing is what we're doing, which is beckoning them with tonal We're sending signal. the right code key. We're sending we're it in sending their the right language. Code. We're sending them the universe in reality, the physics, back to them so they go, oh, at least some of those guys know something important. And you know that today two of my tests playing the the, the tones back on my spectral analyzer, I found two numbers that were spitted out of probably over 100, uh, about 80 or 90 numbers per dash that were divisible by 144.1 perfectly, (laughs) perfectly, two of them. So two of them rules out chance. Do you know what the odds of a frequency that they're embedding in the return signal being perfectly divisible by our transmitting master number, 144.1, not 144, 144.1, with a degree of accuracy of 99.99%. Now that, that is 
is incredible. Well, the odds have to be billions to one against chance for this. There are billions to one against chance, and the data is there. So it's in the recording. It can be spectroanalyzed, and there's de- different ways of spectralizing, spectroanalyzing data. The problem with a word in a language is a single word is made up of multiple frequency patterns all bundled together, whereas technology like a piano key, if I hit A440 or A442, then you're just going to see a wave pattern that is exactly repeatable, only that frequency. But in a word, tons of frequencies all stuck together. Wow. That's why each human voice out of 8 billion people, none of them are 100% identical. You know why? Each one of them, each of our voices, which is made up of the shape of, of, of our throat and our lungs and our chest resonance, have embedded multiple frequency bands within each word that we speak that is totally unique in its patterning to any other likable human on the planet. So that, that that's what we're looking at here. That's what I detect wow. in these waveforms. They and are, this is and this was you just did this in the last twenty four hours by basically not sleeping and I'm I'm so appreciative. Now we're gonna do another broadcasting session to Omoa next Saturday night, same time, same bat channel. And by then, we'll have enough analysis, including uh, Jimmy will have done uh, waveform spectral analysis, so we'll be able to see the graphs and see the frequencies and, and compare them with what we sent and begin to deconstruct these very complex waveforms. And God knows who's going to show up next, next Saturday night above the antennas. Okay, we've got a couple three minutes here to the end of this okay. of this oh, hour. So let me let me show up. <laughs> let me let, let me bring in uh, Steve Bassett, who's head of the Paradigm Research Group, which is working in Washington on disclosure to get the federal government to finally acknowledge a what's been going on and b what could go on, and Dr. Joseph Bookman, who has run as a uh, Libertarian candidate with UFOs as a major plank. UFO disclosure uh, as part of his campaigns. Gentlemen, do you have any questions of David Sarita tonight? I don't think so. Okay, Stephen has no questions. Joe? Did we lose Joe Buckman? I'm checking. Okay, so, um, I got to sign off, Richard, because I got my kids in the house, and it's been great to be here. Have a great show with Steve. Haven't talked to you in a long time, Steve. Love to c- catch up with you one day. Um, so, have a great night, you guys. I got to go. I got to run. Super. Best Thank you. you so much for this update. This is this is definitely a lot of food for thought. Now, do, do we have a Joe on the line? Uh, he dropped out. I don't know why. Okay. Well, that is usually what happens when. Things go bump in the night. Um, the only thing, the only thing I can say is that the reason that we got such immediate, extraordinary results, and I want to point out that the uh, analysis that David presented just in the last few minutes was taken in the uh, four-plus-hour window, eight total hours of signal travel time at the speed of light to Oumuamua, and then roughly four hours back to Earth. So that data was collected during the time window when ordinary 
physics would obtain. There are earlier recordings that he made of the instantaneous response that was uh, simultaneous with the appearance of the objects above the antenna. And we have no idea at the moment uh, what those contain because all this takes time. And there was literally only 24 hours between what we did last night and what we did tonight. So um, uh, we will have that for you in another six days. We're going to schedule another one of these test transmission sessions for next Saturday night in our normal uh, time window of 10 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Mountain to 1 a.m. Mountain Time. And we will have uh, uh, better instrumentation set up so that we can record uh, things in real time. And hopefully we will actually be able to get a spectrum analyzer online so we can see some of that output in real time. Um, I am just absolutely overwhelmed at how successful this early experiment seems to have been. Um, I expected that we might hear something, but of course what we were thinking, what we were expecting was something kind of like, you know, mainstream SETI experiments where, you know, you listen and you hear uh, on a particular frequency some kind of modulated transmission and then you look for fundamental mathematical constants or something like that. Um, this is very different because I believe in all of the uh, breakthrough listen efforts that were focused on trying to detect any kind of uh, microwave or ultra high frequency emissions from a muamua, no one tried or maybe even conceived of the idea of actually broadcasting into interplanetary space to see if there would some be some kind of uh, response from far, far beyond. Um, it, it's kind of sobering that, in fact, we're uh, poised on the edge of, of, of something that could be opening an extraordinary window on the entire UFO phenomenology, a window which has at least publicly, not been opened before. And that opens up an extraordinary set of implications. And we're going to talk about what's going on officially vis-a-vis -vis the government in Washington, the various branches of the, the U.S. government, military, political, and lobbyists, and journalists, and all of that. When we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, December 5th, 2021. My guests this morning now for the rest of the program are Stephen Bassett. And if we can find him, um, we need to we need to uh, connect with Joe Buckman. And Joe Buckman will, of course, uh, if Skype permits, he will reappear. So. In lieu of, Steve, of, of, of Joseph, Stephen, what are your thoughts on what you've heard? Stephen? Joe's back. Uh, unmute, Steve. You'd think after all this time working with Skype, we'd all remember you got to hit that little button when you want to talk. So, Joe, are you with us? Uh we're having more trouble communicating with folks just a few states away than we are with objects uh, many billions of miles away. Very interesting. Joe is still connecting, uh, according to okay. Skype. Steve, are you there? Steve is muted, though. Okay. I can barely hear you. Really? That's bizarre. Because I'm, I'm the levels here on the board are totally normal. Can you hear me? I've got my volume turned up. I can't barely hear you. Hmm. I'll tell you what. Why don't we disconnect from everybody and reconnect? Okay. No. no let's fix Steve. We lost Joe. How do we fix Steve? Steve needs to check his settings under Skype and make sure that his uh, speaker levels in there are set to the right level. This is why you have technical people around. Okay, this is real-time radio, folks. We're doing this live. Stephen, are you checking your Skype settings? I'm not hearing Stephen. I'm hearing weird clicking. Okay, let me find out if I can ring. I think we need to disconnect from everybody and try to reconnect. That's my layman opinion. When in doubt, reboot. <laughs> okay. See, what's so interesting is that we've had controversial programs before. I hear Richard. Can you hear me? Cannot make out the words. Oh, and can you hear me? And my turned up completely. I was hearing everything fine prior to the break. And we changed uh, nothing. You on a headset? Does it have a separate mm-hmm. volume control? Okay. Let us try reconnecting. All right? All right. Let's, let's disconnect from everybody and reconnect, okay? 
While I do what is known in live radio as VAMP, I want everyone to kind of take a deep breath and think about what you just heard. Because what we did was set up an experiment, which was to transmit mainstream radio to an object which the mainstream is kind of considering as an interstellar artifact, Abby Loeb, of course, leading that contingent. And we expected in the SETI parlance that we would send signals, at least I did, send signals and uh, it would take about four hours to get there at the speed of light. And then they would take four hours if someone responded, if an AI on board, some kind of robotic, uh, uh, you know, computer system, whatever, maybe even live beings if they're if they're if they're there uh, and they want to respond that would then take at a minimum of four hours to get back maybe longer if they had to kind of think about what do we say and so sometime in the middle of the night long after we had gone off the air like four or five o'clock in the morning uh, we would have heard a radio response and one of the things we expected would be that in the in the again the the paradigm of SETI the the way the literature reads you know if you send signals you might get the same signal back uh, as an answering code that lets you know that they your audience your target received the communication instead two very extraordinary weird things happened ufos began appearing literally dozens over the antenna system located in northern Arizona, uh, operated by Jimmy Blanchett, and simultaneously, weird clicks on on handheld walkie-talkie radios that were tuned specifically to the two frequencies that we were transmitting, 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. Both those radios were activated sporadically beginning almost immediately after we began transmitting at about 9.30 Mountain Time last night. As the evening progressed, the transmissions back increased in frequency. The number of folks showing up, posing, photobombing the antenna in northern Arizona increased. And uh, when Oumuamua set below the horizon, um, uh, usually to the voicemail to Dr. Joseph Bookman. Oh, now this is interesting. We're having real problems connecting with both our guests tonight. Gosh, I wonder if some of our <clears throat> friends down here on Earth are trying to screw up the program because they do not like what we are doing. Would that be beyond the pale? No. That, in fact, has happened repeatedly with this program over the years, which only means, you know, remember that old cliche? that the flak is heaviest right over the target, it means we've struck a nerve. It means someone is unhappy with what we did last night and what we're attempting to do tonight, which, of course, is to give the mainstream political background, the backdrop to these civilian efforts out in the field. I mean, one of my models politically for what's going on is that as the general disclosure wave unfolds, as more people with positive responses like we got last night begin to pay attention and pay attention politically, then more and more people will begin doing independent efforts at communication. 
Meanwhile, the government is trying, and we're going to hear the details, I'm hoping, uh, of how they're trying to kind of keep this under wraps, to give the illusion of openness, to give the illusion of, uh, of uh, uh, okay, uh, Keith is asking me to do something, I'm going to do it. Okay, I have done it. To give the illusion of disclosure when, in fact, uh, um, from certain perspectives, you know, we'll call them the deep state, if uh, for no other reason that seems kind of a, an appropriate uh, terminology, um, are going to attempt to control and to to keep under wraps anything, shall we say, incendiary or controversial or outside of the box, or as the uh, Intel folks I used to talk to many years ago would say, um, uh, uh, basically off the reservation. I think we've got Steve Bassett with us. Stephen, are you there? Yes, I'm back. I'm good. And you can hear me. Wow. Had a loose cable. It was a loose cable, uh, and I just happened to happen right then. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So we're back in business. Okay. What do you think of what we're doing, communications-wise, with you-know-who out there? That's outside my strike zone. Oh, come on. You got an opinion? How can you spend 40 years doing what you're doing and not have an opinion when there's stunning positive results? I got 25 years doing this, and again, I try not to swing at balls outside the strike zone. That's how you strike out. So I'm, I'm going to leave that area to you. Um, my area is politics. Well, the reason this is merging the two areas is because you're dealing with government reactions, you know, congressional legislation, hearings, et cetera, et cetera. Under the assumption, we've had these conversations off the air, that this is going to somehow be uh, controlled. Uh, by the way, I think you can kill your camera. We don't need your camera. Okay. Oh. That's taking up bandwidth. Absolutely. Okay. There. Good. Um, that this could, is going to be controlled by official government sources. I think one of the reasons that last night's experiment is incredibly relevant to tonight's discussion is because my projection is. There's no way this could be controlled in any way, shape, or form, and it's going to be Katie bar the door and all kinds of things that people don't want to talk about because it's too embarrassing or they're you know, kind of you know, concerned with credibility, whatever. It's all going to go by the wayside. This is going to be a free-for-all, and there's no way to predict where it's going to land. That's the process of democratic open-source disclosure. Um, let me put it this way. There are going to be many, many entities, agencies, and others who are going to try to influence this process. I guess you could say to control it. But, and there will be various degrees of success. The, but the truth embargo is imploding uh, like a uh, a star, right, just before it goes Nova, and uh, that they can't ultimately control, but they can they can try to influence the process. I've said many times that the last days and weeks, maybe months, of the truth embargo, which has been in place for, well, as of July of next year, 75 years, three quarters of a century, is going to be chaotic. When you have 
something like that in place for so long, and then it's going to come to an end. Uh, the number of people in the world that are aware something big is uh, that this phenomena is is happening, whatever it is, is perhaps everybody except a few living in the deepest jungles of South America or uh, islands in the Indian Ocean. I mean, everybody knows what a in their own language what UAP means. So obviously that's a big audience for an event of this magnitude. But the people that have been involved in it for many, many decades, they're very much invested and they're going to get very excited. They're going to get very intense. And then there are quite a few people that are not maybe directly involved in the research, but they're 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 working it. They've got they've got uh, they 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 talk about it on Twitter. They may make TikTok videos and just a lot of things like that. They're going to have some fun. There's going to be all kinds of things being tossed out there. Well, the let me let, let me let, let me throw out a number. We now know, based on extraordinary, you know, analysis by everybody you, you can imagine, politicos, you know, uh, military people, uh, commentators, pundits, anchors, you know, institutions, academia like uh, Harvard, whatever. We know that about half the American people get their news not from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or from network television or even Fox. They get it from Facebook. What yeah. happens if there is a extraterrestrial effort to basically simply bypass all the filters like last night and go directly through social media to the people? Half the population of the United States is on social media if not more so, and they, they don't pay attention to the mainstream. How is that going to be controlled by the anal retentives on Capitol Hill and over at the Pentagon who are desperately trying to maintain some kind of control? Well, there's an assumption here that I have no idea or I can have no opinion about it, what the ETs might do. They'll do whatever they want to do, and uh, I have no idea. What they're, I have no idea what they're going to do. I do have some knowledge about what they have done, right, going back now 75 years all the way to Roswell. But in terms of how they are going to conduct themselves during the last days of the truth embargo, which is a global truth embargo, to be true, not a single head of state has ever confirmed the extraterrestrial presence. I don't know, uh, and I don't worry about it much. I got enough on my hands just trying to keep up with <laughs> what humans are doing with respect to this. And there's a lot happening there. Um, uh, and your point, let me put it this way. Getting one's news from Facebook is both a curse and a blessing. Uh, it's a blessing in the sense that you and maybe some of the other social media platforms like Twitter, you, you can maneuver and, and, and go where you want and search and what have you. Uh, you have some, a lot of personal control. That's kind of cool. Uh, you can certainly get the sources that uh, simply cannot afford to platform any other way. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to have a major newspaper. It costs practically nothing to have a, a Facebook news page. But the, the curse is that the amount of bad information on Facebook is almost impossible to keep track of. It's yeah, the like signal to noise ratio is almost a zero. River. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we're, we're we're seeing the consequences of this. Uh, we didn't ask for Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> gave it to us. I say gave it to us. He created it and and made it happen. We didn't ask for it. Nobody. I, I don't recall ever sending him a 
a letter or something saying, you know, you know, Mark, we need something like this. We didn't ask for Twitter. We didn't even ask for the Internet. Uh, this is all recent it's, uh, in terms of history. It's about 25 years, maybe 30 now. No, 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 25, 25. Uh, that's, that's not even a, a generation. And it's a massive thing with all kinds of implications. It came with no user manual. Everybody had to sort of figure it out for themselves, like computers. People didn't – how many people actually went to computer school? Practically none. They figured it out by self-teaching and driving support people on the phone crazy, literally, driving them to nervous breakdowns, uh, trying to figure things out and getting help and blah. That went on for many years with like a, a national uh, national autodidactism being supported by phone people. Uh, and yet we learned how to use computers. But it is not – it has been messy. Uh, we had we not, not given consider, proper consideration to all the implications, uh, the downsides, as it were. And but uh, humans have been doing that forever, right? I mean, we 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 invented the car, which replaced the buggy, horse and buggy, which put the horse and buggy business out of out of business. And we charged forward. We didn't think about well, what happens when people are driving 70 miles an hour uh, without a seatbelt, and Thousands, no, millions of people. Millions? Yeah, millions. Think. A lot of people have died since we invented the car. Uh, but we were going to invent it, and we were going to use it, and that's the way it is. This is the way history moves forward. It, it moves forward on the genius and invention of a few and often the dead bodies of many. So I accept that, but I have no intention of being a victim of it, uh, which is why I turn my 5G off every night when I, when I go to sleep. All right, well, look. <laughs> You want an update of what the hell's happening here uh, in terms of the on-the-ground uh, political process that's underway, and I am ready to tell you. Okay, I want to start with uh, Gillibrand, who is probably one of the most interesting senators now on the Hill. She has introduced an amendment to the annual uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which is the annual budgeting process for funding the military, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense. And she has crafted this amendment in a very elegant way. And there appears to be kind of counterforce going on behind the scenes to kind of gut that idea. Why don't we start there? No, I disagree with that. that oh, okay. Uh, first of all, let's put it in context. Uh, there have now been three insertions into uh, appropriate defense appropriations bill or our national defense appropriation act uh, one, the first one was by Marco Rubio the second one was by Ruben Gallego out of the House of Representatives and the third one was uh, Gillibrand uh, also a, a senator uh, and and so two of them were put into the, uh, the Senate versions of the bill regarding intelligence appropriations and one was put into a House version. So, and that's a lot. So what does that mean? Let's just look at that in this context. Since things started to heat up and the truth embargo came under serious attack. With the, so, with the December 2017 yeah. uh, article in the New York Times. The 60 days, you know, the, what will be an historic 60 days in America or human history. The launch of the TTSA. And then the delivery by them to the to the uh, New York Times, the two stories, which the Times after <laughs> so after how many years now? About six decades, 
decades. Uh, decided that maybe we ought to really cover this, though they had written many stories. And those, those stories were bombshells, front page. Um, and since then, the truth embargo has basically been a dead embargo walking. But it's not fully dead until we get disclosure, which means we get head of state confirmation. So, so wait, wait, wait. That, that is your definition of disclosure. Oh yeah, always has been. All right, let me let me hang on, hang on. Let me propose an alternative scenario. There is no alternative. Yes, there is. There certainly is. I guarantee you there is. No, 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 no. That's that's how. This is the way political activists work. You you create a prize that you you want to get because it serves the public interest. It could be a a a a voting rights act or or a, a civil rights act, for instance. And you then marshal people to go get that prize. You just don't say, look, we need to make things better for black people or people of color. No, you have to have a prize. And years ago, I defined that prize for the activist movement on this issue as the, the formal acknowledgement of the of extraterrestrial presence by heads of state. That's how it's defined. Now, somebody could have other ideas about, oh, it could be this way, it could be that way, but that's not what well, well let me please interrupt and say this the mm-hmm. alternative is the ets themselves simply do the cliched thing and land in front view of television cameras on the white house lawn regardless of what biden says i what, understand that what do you I do then because i could no that's a whole separate question no it isn't yes it is it's part I, of the I, same I, landscape I, I am an activist dealing in the terrestrial world i have absolutely no influence about what the extraterrestrials are going to do I will admit that if the extraterrestrials landed around Washington in a very apparent way on the mall, the hell out of everybody, that actually wouldn't be disclosure. That would be more like what the hell's going on, but it would force the president very quickly to confirm, my God, yeah, there's extraterrestrials here. Mm-hmm. Some of them are parked out there by the football stadium. So it all comes down to the same thing, and it, it all ends up with the head of state confirming the extraterrestrials are real. They're here, that there's an extraterrestrial presence. What leads up to that is pre-disclosure. Once that announcement is made and goes around the world, post-disclosure. We're in the pre-disclosure world. I am trying to address what we can do, what's happening in our world, our terrestrial world. I have no influence, no control, and no awareness of what the ETs are going to do, and I, and, and I couldn't. I can't. Just dealing with the, the, the terrestrial situation is even probably more than I can handle. So that's what we're talking about now. What, 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 what's happening in the United States politically with respect to the truth embargo and its uh, eventual and hopefully soon end? And what I – to get back to your original point, as a result – of those articles and the to the stars launching, and then the particularly the action of two of the former members of the to the stars academy, Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo, uh, things have moved on, in many directions, and a lot has happened. Now the problem here, and that's what I was trying to point to earlier, is that this is not going to be a smooth, straightforward uh, 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 process leading to this final event. It is going to be a mess. There are so many entities involved. You mean terrestrial? When you say entities, you mean terrestrial institutions? Yeah, I, I mean uh, agencies. Agencies. Yeah, when, when you say entity, I think upstairs. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So many agencies and individuals uh, and military services 
and even corporations and in general other institutions who are going to be affected by this uh, and have their own special problems to face when it comes to an end. And we know that by and large, uh, up until just recently, just every entity that you could point to, all the colleges and universities, by and large, all of the mainstream media, though they've done a hell of a lot of journalism, they just weren't willing to cross a certain line, uh, as well as, of course, the Department of Defense and military. So I could go on and on and on. All of them, up until relatively recently, were firmly behind a fundamental policy of the United States. Deny, that, deny, deny. Well, the policy is uh, that the uh, extraterrestrial presence will not be confirmed. Uh, we, we may we may just deny it outright. We may ignore you. We might fool you. Whatever it's going to take, we were not going to confirm the extraterrestrial presence. That is what I came to call a long time ago the truth embargo, not UFO cover-up. Truth embargo. It is not illegal policy. And also it uses the acronym UFO, which is toxic poison and needs to be put in a box and uh, buried 100 feet below the ground. UAP is the term. means exactly the same thing. It just doesn't carry all the toxins. It's like the difference between a venomous snake and a non-venomous snake. Okay. So with respect to the Congress, what happened is that uh, the reason that Gillibrand is involved at all uh, or Rubio or Gallego, uh, the reason that the Pentagon is uh, uh, doing anything is because primarily – I say primarily. It, it's the accumulation of things since 19, uh, 2017, but the two key figures that have stirred the pot the most, uh, most of which – a lot of which is behind the scenes, but they can still stir – is Chris and Lou Elizondo. So what the hell were they doing that was putting so much pressure on not only the Congress but also the Pentagon that all of a sudden, even though it's crazy ball, they're playing ball? All right, here's what they did. Mellon, when he realized things were going to take a good while, uh, took the approach, okay, let's just start preparing the Congress for when it can hold hearings. And so for at least two years… He was going up on the hill and briefing members of Congress. Sometimes he took witnesses with him, like Favor and others. Uh, but members that he chose to brief weren't just any members. He was almost certainly focusing on – When you say Favor, that's one of the Navy pilots that encountered yeah, the Favre, UAP, etc. He is a military witness. There are a lot of military witnesses, uh, mostly retired, some active. He's up on the hill. And he is briefing members of Congress, but he is briefing uh, almost certainly focused on a certain set of members of Congress. And these are the ones that sit on certain key committees. And the most important committees with respect to this issue, certainly initially, are the two intelligence committees, the two armed services committees, and quite possibly the two uh, homeland security committees. So he would have focused on those members. This went on for two years. So what was happening behind the scenes, members of Congress who did not say anything about it, they a couple of them acknowledged that they, were, they had gotten a briefing, but they did not talk about what they were told. Uh, this went on for a long time, and these members quietly sat on that because there was clearly mutual agreement 
that, okay, I've got this. You're telling me some very important things. We should take some action, but now is not the time. Again, I'm talking about 2019, 2020. All right. So, but they're getting prepared. They're getting prepared to do their job, and that's hold hearings on this issue. So that was happening. So all that groundwork was being laid. And as it happens, we found out that one of the Republicans briefed, not surprisingly, informed the White House that they had gotten briefed about this. I'll tell you what, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's pause there. So a briefing was set up for the president, which took place, I think, in July of 2019. And uh, he didn't really have much to say about it. There was not much let's, from it. Let's, let's, let's pause, and we'll, we'll pick it up right after the break. My guest this morning, we're trying to get Joe Buckman back with us, is Stephen Bassett, head of the Paradigm Research Group, who has been working for a quarter of a century, try to break, to shatter, to penetrate the truth embargo against the backdrop, I believe, of a rising tide of civilian efforts that may actually result in some unpredictable events. We'll leave it there. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Sunday night, December 5th, the night following our historic transmissions to Oumuamua and the remarkable, amazing, paradigm-shattering results which we received, which we will go into in much greater length next Saturday night when we will do it again and we will have a week of analysis of what we received including doing things like raising the frequency of the slowed down transmissions up into the vocal range, one of the things that David did not have, have time to do. I mean, this is very complex. And again, as backdrop to what Stephen is saying, that is a separate track. I totally agree it's a separate track. 
I'm just wondering if the official track is not going to be totally outdistanced by the unofficial track, again, gauged by the extraordinary response that we, who in no way, shape, or form are connected with anything officially going on with all this in Washington, uh, received and recorded. Stephen, you're back. Yes, you're back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Now, the Pentagon was fully aware that these members of Congress were being briefed by, by not just anybody, but by a gentleman, Christopher Mellon, who would not only work in with Congress, uh, in Congress as a uh, on the intelligence issues, but it also worked at the Department of Defense on intelligence issues. He has a distinguished career. He is he's not some citizen activist out there beating on their door with a croquet mallet. He is a, a very serious man who uh, knows what he's doing. So they knew that. They watched it all happen. Fine. So they had plenty of time to know, hmm, stuff's heading our way. Uh, we need to prepare. So the other thing that was going on, which the Pentagon was also aware of, was that Rue Elizondo had been collecting witnesses going all the way back to the beginning. Obviously, he immediately interacted. He was aware of the – and knew of the uh, Nimitz witnesses, Fravor and Day and the others. Uh, they put a show together for history, which is a perfect way to get more witnesses to come talk to them. And the the effect of both the New York Times article, everything else that was going on, uh, and the Unidentified series on History Channel, which ran for 14 episodes, where other witnesses turned up on silhouette, the effect on this was very important. It sent a message throughout the United States and even into other countries but if you are a military witness like Fravor, you can, you could technically tell your story. Uh, even though may, you might have been told you should never talk about this as long as you live, which is typical. Uh, but nothing was happening to Fravor. He was fine. In fact, he was being treated like a hero, getting lots of great publicity. Well, he wound up on 60 Minutes. With, what, was, what, exactly. was, what was the other pilot? Yes. So they, they, there's, there's Dietrich. There's so many. It's hard to keep track of them. I need to create a list. The <laughs> yes, point is, yes. is that they, the, the, thousands of witnesses out there, uh, who have had experience, were, were being, were seeing that uh, coming forward and talking about it was maybe not, not a problem anymore. How many have come forward? We don't know. I do know this. That if I'm a military witness of like bravery, if I'm a pilot, for instance, I had a sighting every bit as powerful as the Nimitz case or the Roosevelt case. And I assure you, there are a lot of these. And I wanted to say, well, I, I've got – I experienced something too. Who, what would you do? Would you call the New York Times and say, hey, you need to talk to me too? Would you, would you go to the local uh, uh, television station? No. You call Lou Elizondo. He's, he's approachable. Or your local or congressman. For chance. Uh, no, you don't go to the local congressman. No way. How do you know what uh, they would do? I'm telling you, that's. I'm, I'm, let me put it this way. It's an educated assessment, all right, that if you're just a pilot and you're going to go to a, a congressman and say, look, I've got a story too, I assure you that congressman does not want to deal with that. I'm talking early on now, 2018, 19. My God, no. 
But yeah, you contact Lou. I have a story. Would you talk to me? We we got wind that maybe a couple of hundred or more had tried to reach out to Lou in various ways. So he was in a position to collect witnesses for a couple of years. So now what do we got here? We've got one man, Mellon, preparing the key committee members in Congress uh, about the issue. And we have another gentleman lining up witnesses who could testify at hearings if those committee members or the chair of those committees that they sat on uh, were to call for hearings. So that's exactly what needed to happen. And that's, I think, what they intended to do all along. Now, the Pentagon is watching all of this. They, they know these witnesses are coming forward. They know what Mellon is doing. And they're going, oh, I think inside an uh, increasing number of people in the DOD, uh, in other words, not necessarily appointees, but um, – um, career people, career people probably realized the, the jig was up. We know that there were some that didn't want the jig to be up, and apparently they kind of tried to cause Lou a, a hard time, uh, thinking that if they can undermine Lou Elizondo, it maybe stop this thing. But unfortunately for them, Lou is a pretty tough guy. Uh, he goes undercover in some of the most dangerous parts in the world, and he wasn't going to be intimidated by some chair jockeys. And so he hired a an attorney, Danny Sheehan, and went straight out to DOT and said, don't do this, stop, stop this, uh, and ended up uh, with multiple meetings in the inspector general's office. I mean, again, these are things that are unthinkable not that long ago regarding this issue. Okay, now, to get to the point, after all of this is coming together, eventually somebody was going to make a move, all right? Now, the mm-hmm. DOD had done a couple of things. It had set up a UAP, UAP task force over at ONI, I guess as a nice gesture, uh, confirmed that the, uh, the videos that were taken were taken from uh, F-18s. They, they were legitimate videos. Uh, and the Navy, uh, I think, did some things, which was constructive. In other words, they were trying to show that they were uh, trying to be helpful. But it wasn't huge, but it was notable. They were waiting, though, for the political action that they knew was going to come. They didn't know from what direction, but they knew it was inevitable. And the first person to to take a clear political move uh, after approximately um, almost uh, uh, two years – let me see if I got this right now – three years uh, uh, after the New York Times article, a little less than three years was a a man who had run for president of the United States, Marco Rubio, who was the chairman of the Senate Intel Committee. Very important position. And someone who had very much influenced the language that was going to go into the intelligence uh, section of the National Defense Appropriations Act. And Rubio, as we know, put language in the 2021 bill calling for a report uh, listing a whole bunch of things that they wanted uh, from the DOD and other agencies. This was a big deal, but it got even bigger because while it wasn't really appropriate, he said, we want a, we want a classified report to the Intel Committee, and we want a public report. Now, the DOD didn't want anything to do with a public report. That's not their job is to go straight to the public with information about UAPs. Uh-uh. They're a national defense entity. They report to Congress, and they, the Congress has oversight. They report to the president as commander-in-chief. 
they don't have the license to go freelancing on this, so they don't want to go to the public. But he put it in there. Okay, fine. But he did something else. He put a date on it. He said this report will come 180 days after the bill is signed. Now, this was announced, this language was announced in July of 2020. The mm. bill didn't get signed until December, which set the, dead, the deadline June 25. And so what that meant was, one, the Department of Defense ultimately was going to have an entire year to decide how to deal with this initial political maneuver. Uh, and two, if you put a deadline on something like a report about UAPs from the Congress, I mean to the Congress from the DOD, you are guaranteeing massive uh, media coverage, which is exactly what they got. Yep. And as it got closer to the deadline, the media coverage expanded. So Rubio not only uh, put the DOD on, on, uh, on alert and somewhat uh, put the pressure on them, he also excited and, and galvanized the media and got a huge amount of positive press, which, frankly, he needed. So it was a crude move. And as we know, eventually there were reports. The public report, not surprising, was seven pages of uh, acronyms and, and, <laughs> and military speak. Yeah, very thin. There were, very, there very, were very points. thin. Yeah, there were some points there. The most important thing in that public report, which had already been sort of acknowledged anyway, is that the technology being represented was not ours. And that's for, for the average person in the street, that doesn't mean much. But for people that understand this issue, it means a lot. It is virtually the same thing as saying they're extraterrestrial. So we got that report. Everybody was disappointed. I wasn't because the classified version of the report went out on March the 16th, three months before. And it was delivered to the, the members of the key committees. I believe it was both House and Senate Intel and House and, Sen and, and, House, and, Senate and House and Senate Armed Forces. It's a decent number of members received. Now, there have been various estimates. The best one that I have heard is was 100 pages, but there have been estimates it was less, more, doesn't matter. But it was, a, it was a hell of a lot more than the public report. In addition, there were people that went over and actually briefed them with slideshows and puppet you know, shows or whatever the hell they do. Okay. Now, what does that mean? It meant that, that see, March, March 16, April, March, April, May, June, almost over three months before the public report is even put out, the members of these committees have been sitting on the classified report, and they have never discussed it. They have never gone public with it. Nope. Still haven't, okay? But they had been primed. In other words, they've not only now been given uh, earlier briefings by Mellon and witnesses, they've now gotten a classified report from the DOD. So there's a whole lot of members on the Hill that know a lot about this that they're not talking about. So it's, things are moving forward. Okay. Now, uh, hang on. I, I have a question. You said a few moments ago that the president was briefed. You mean Trump, right? Yes, correct. Because Trump was asked by one of the Fox guys, I think, and he was very noncommittal. He wouldn't, he wouldn't admit that he'd been briefed. He, Why? He, he was asked a few questions during his term. There was responses of no substance, and he, has take, he took no substantive action. He simply – he just wasn't interested. Um, so uh, – and nothing happened during his term. 
So the report comes out on June 25 of 2020. Now, what's the next thing that happens? Well, things go quiet for a while, though Lou was active. Well, one of the things that Lou started doing podcasts, he's, he's, been, he's been doing podcasts all over the place. He, he decided to go very much more public, even though answering questions is not easy for him because he's under a lot of constraints. Still, he's, he's, he's the public relations guy. He's the, he's the interface between this process, frankly, and the public from, as an insider. Okay, So he was doing all that, but things kind of quieted down in terms of the politics. And the next move comes because we're approaching uh, the language for the 2022 National Defense Appropriations Act. And in this case, it was time for the House to take action. In other words, the House is one of the two you know, houses of Congress. Um, and uh, they're not just going to sit there and let the Senate take all the glory. And so it was time for them to step in. And this came from a Democrat, Ruben Gallego. And he put language into the House 22 bill. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't this legislation that was in the COVID relief bill, the $1.9 trillion that uh, Biden got passed earlier this year? That's the first time around. That was 2021. That, that, that's irrelevant. It's not surprising that these bills are, are packaged. They do it all the time. And so yeah, right, right. Bill was back to the COVID. But that, the fact that it was a COVID bill is of no consequence. No, no, no. But that was the carrier of getting it into law. No, no, it wasn't. They were going to they were going to pass a National Defense Appropriations Act. You, you, you believe me, they always pass that. That's one of the bills they're going to pass. So why was it, it attached it, to the COVID bill? Because and not it the makes NG- it easier. You put sometimes you, you, you put bills together like that to get them done and get them out the door rather than have to go through the process for every one of them. They package bills like this all the time. It's not a big deal. Now, so Gallego makes his move, and his language goes into Section 1652 of the House bill for 2022. Let me just read just the first key paragraph. Establishment, not later than 180 days after the date of the enactment of this act. Notice how he's mirrored what – They all uh, love that number. I don't know why. That's six months, whatever. But it's, it's exactly the same thing that Rub, uh, Rubio did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, previous bill. The Secretary of Defense, in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence, shall establish an office with a member. Rubio is calling for a report. Diego is calling for an office. An office, an establishment, an institution, an ongoing investigation. And an mit- office. And they're talking an mitigation. Again, they're not, that's not in this language. They, they establish an office. Now, remember, the DOD had already set up a, a sort of a placeholder over at the Office of Naval Intelligence, you and I, called the UAP Task Force. But that's not what he's talking about. To so establish an office within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, in other words, an office in the DOD, not something sitting out there in the boondocks, uh, on a department-wide basis, the mission currently performed and, and – comma – the mission currently performed by the unidentified aerial t- uh, predominant task force as of the date of the enactment of this bill. In other words, he's saying you got to move uh, that UAP task force, call it whatever the hell you want, but you're moving it inside the DOD where it's supposed to be, right? Right. Okay, fine. Duties. The duties of the office established under the subsection, the subsection shall include the following. Developing procedures to synchronize and standardize the collection, reporting, and analysis of incidents regarding unidentified air phenomena. Developing processes and procedures to ensure that such incidents from each military department are reported. 
establishing procedures to require the timely and consistent reporting, evaluating links between unidentified aerial phenomena and adversarial foreign governments, if there are any, evaluating the threat that such incidents present to the United States, coordinating the, uh, with allies and partners of the United States and appropriate, uh, as appropriate to better assess the nature and extent of UAPs, UAP, not UAPs. Uh, annual report requirement no later than December 31, 2022, and annually thereafter until December 31, 2026, the Secretary of Defense shall submit to the appropriate congressional committees a report on UAP and list some elements. This is, this is pretty substantial, right? He's basically saying you need to do the job to institutionalize the investigation. No, it didn't institutionalize. It's been institutionalized for 75 years, Dick. What he is Not doing, in public. That's the point. What he is doing is saying all that stuff that you've been doing under classified status, uh, we want you to set it up publicly. Exactly. And this is the thing that everybody keeps forgetting and needs to get if they want to understand this. Otherwise, it's going to drive them crazy. <laughs> right? Whatever they're asking for. Whatever the Department of Defense announces it's going to do, that's all fine. But the Department of Defense and the Air Force and the Navy and the Army and plenty of people with the intelligence community have known there are extraterrestrials here since 1947, if not a little bit sooner, 75 years. And they have been investigating and managing that issue all of this time with a huge amount of money and great commitment under maximum classification and a truth embargo. And you may say, well, if they've got it classified, why do they need a truth embargo? Because the ETs can pretty much go anywhere they want, whenever they want, however they want. And there's not a damn thing they could do about it. And so they couldn't just make it a secret thing and it would all be nice, but no, they had to classify it, but they also had to embargo it so the public would hopefully maintain a distance. And so this is what Gallego did. Oh, that's great. That's great. But now it's time for the Senate. The Senate, the Senate version of the bill, as you know, I, I'm sure your listeners know that bills are made, first one in the House, one in the Senate, and then they're reconciled, then they're, they're passed and signed by the president. We all, so saw the, bill, we all saw the film, how a bill yeah, becomes a law. Absolutely. <laughs> so in the Senate now, that appropriations bill has got to be put together. And in this instance, another senator stepped in and added language to the Senate bill. Hmm. Who was it? Kirsten Gillibrand. Okay, fine. And obviously that got a lot of press. Now, let's step back for a second. At this point, all right, Carter, bringing it up during his campaign, way back in 76, hmm which led to him trying to get a study done, which basically was cut off at the knees, but still, he did that. And then you got, not really Reagan, and he said practically nothing of consequence, but then you've got another presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, bringing it up extensively, along with some of her people. Well, wait, 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 you, you casually kind of skipped over Reagan. He and Gorbachev had specific conversations at that summit about I'm, this subject. Yeah, I'm just referring to presidential candidates. I'm just kind to that. People who want to be president. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they're talking this before they even become president. Right. Hillary Clinton, of course, said a great deal. Now, I'm going to take a lot of responsibility for that. It's a story that's not fully understood and told yet. 
one day it'll get told. The point is that I put them in a position where they just had no choice but to say something and do something. And they did a lot. They did a lot to generate hundreds and hundreds of articles. Didn't affect her campaign. Didn't cost her any votes. But she didn't have to go further than she did because the journalists basically didn't talk, ask her anything. Uh, none of the debate uh, people asked her anything. And so she was able to kind of just move forward. Okay, fine. Now, that's two. Well, Marco Rubio, as you may or may not remember, uh, Marco Rubio also ran to be president, uh, and he intends to run again. Um, and so now you've got three candidates for president that have spoken to this issue uh, while they're uh, with, with fully intentioning to run or, or, or were running for president. Gallego's not one of those people, but Gillibrand, yeah, guess what? Remember, she ran for president. Yeah, she did run. And she's very likely going to run again, and now she has stepped in. Now, that's interesting, too, because Mark Warner is the chairman of the Senate Intel Committee, and if, and if anybody's going to put language, he could have been him. He could have said, I'll put that language in, mm-hmm. just like Rubio was the chair when he did it. Mark apparently deferred to Gillibrand. Why? Because Mark Warner's not going to run for president, mm. and she is. So what's the message here? The message is they've kind of figured out that being on the right side of this issue, being on the side of the public's right to know, need to know, could be actually a significant asset if you plan to run for president of the United States. And I can assure you that's not the way it used to be. No way. Here is just very quickly the language that she put in initially uh, into the bill. Definitions, appropriate committees of Congress means appropriate committees of Congress, uh, and they are the Congressional Intel Committee, the Committee on Armed Services, and the Committee on Armed Services of the House of Representatives. Uh, I mean Armed Services Senate and Armed Services of the House of Representatives and the two intelligence committees at the House of Senate. She's just initiated the appropriate committees as four committees, the ones I told you about, the House and Senate Intel and the House and Senate Armed Services, which were the committees that received the briefing, the classified briefing requested by Rubio on March the 16th of 2020. You see how it's just kind of moving forward all nicely? All right. Mm-hmm. She defines unidentified uh, aerial phenomena and says this, the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense shall each in coordination with each other require each element of the intelligence community and the Department of Defense with data relating to unidentified aerial phenomena to make such data available immediately to the unidentified unidentified aerial phenomena task force and to the national air and space intelligence center okay so she's the unidentified phenomena task force at the point that she puts that in is still parked over at the oni okay fine you don't care you need to give that information to them immediately and the national air and space intelligence center fine she wanted to throw them in so remember gallego is calling for a report and he's calling for a creation of the office or moving the UAP task force from ONI to the Department of Defense. She's simply saying, we want information in coordination with each other uh, to uh, 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 present data immediately to the UAP. And Diego is saying the UAP task force needs to be over at DOD. Then she wants Section C, quarterly reports. She says, in general, not later than 90 days <laughs> after the enactment of this act, 
Uh, and no less frequently than quarterly thereafter, the Unidentified Aerophenomena Task Force, wherever the hell it's located, or such other entity as the Deputy of Defense, Secretary of Defense may designate, remember that phrase, to be re- responsible for matters relating to unidentified and aerophenomena, shall submit to the appropriate committee of Congress quarterly reports on the findings of, UAP ta- of the UAP Task Force or such other designated entity. In other words, 90 days after the date of the enactment, three months. Now, that bill is set to pass pretty soon. So her deadline is one half of Gallego's deadline. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't really matter. They're kind of talking about different things, but whatever. She put the deadline at 90 days out, which means that it'll fall somewhere around early uh, April. Okay, fine. Make Make a mental note of that. Content. Each report submitted under paragraph one shall include a minimum of the following. All reported UAP-related events that occurred during the previous 90 days. All reported unidentified air phenomena-related events that occurred during the time period other than the previous days, but were not included in the earlier report. And each report submitted under paragraph one shall be submitted in classified form. In other words, you're going to report to us about new UAP things? And you're going to do it classified, and you've got a 90-day window in each case. Report on future structures and responsibilities of foreign malign influence, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. So here we are. And then guess what happens? And this may be the most important thing of all, which is also being misunderstood. Uh, because, again, this is a very complicated, chaotic Okay, process. we are at the top of the hour, so we're going to okay. hold that till, Absolutely. you know, one wonderful tease. Um, mm, you know, huge tease. <laughs> Stephen knows how to tell a story. Not many people on radio do, and I value those so much that do. I mean, come on. This is one hell of a story. There's the political machinations in front of the cameras, behind the cameras, in proposal legislation, in the creation of new official public bureaus in the U.S. defense establishment. And then there's the stuff going on out in the hinterlands, out among the great unwashed, out among, well, like what we did last night. And we're going to follow up, and who knows where that's going to go. At some point, these two streams, remember Ghostbusters? Never cross the streams. Well, these two streams are going to cross. What do you think could happen then? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. Here in the desert, the high desert, as Art used to love to say, well, I, I'm at 6,000 feet. It's high desert, and there was a gorgeous little crescent moon out there tonight, moving its way toward the 90-degree point on the Christmas weekend, which will demonstrate another facet of our communications effort when that three nights, Christmas Eve, Christmas night, and the night after Christmas, we transmit not just to Oumuamua, a much more expanded library of files and images and tones and mathematics and geometry. We also are going to attempt to send the same set of files to the moon. What do you think could happen there? Again, crossing the stream. So, Stephen, please continue. Unmuting helps. Stephen? Are you there? Sorry. There you are. I'll never, I'll never not do that once in a while. It's just one of those <laughs> things. Um, uh, so all we have all this activity happening from late 2017. Members of Congress being briefed. Oh, get closer to the mic. You're way off mic. Oh yeah, my mic is over here. Boy, I'm really a pro, aren't I, Richard? Let me start all over again. Good idea. Um, uh, we have all this activity since 2017. Uh, members of Congress being briefed. All the stuff coming out in the New York Times. You've got witnesses collecting. And then you've got direct actions coming from key political people, people who have run for president, may run for president again. Gillibrand got a lot of press about her uh, language in the bill. Then she put an amendment to the bill, which gets even more complex uh, or add more to uh, what they would like. That got a lot of press. Diego, not so much. He's, he's, he's not, he, he never ran for president, and he has, I, I don't think he has any presidential aspirations, so there's just a couple of articles. Gillibrand got a lot. Yeah, by the way, so, the full story on Gillibrand is my item number five from The Hill, which is kind of the official you know, Hill newspaper. 
Oh, yeah. I'll get to that, too. So what happens next is huge. Now, keep in mind that it is appropriate that we be very skeptical about everything the Department of Defense does or any of the intelligence agencies. You think? We We should be in a trust but verify. Yep. On the other hand, it's not uh, unreasonable to think that they actually may try to do the right thing and that we may be winning and we ought to be able to take yes for an answer when it finally comes. I'm definitely staying in that neutral area where, hey, I like what I'm seeing, but yeah, we're paying attention. So if this takes a nasty right turn or left turn, we're ready to deal with it. Let me, let me stop you there and ask a very fundamental question. We've uh-huh. had nothing but lies and secrecy for 75 years on this. Mm-hmm. In Gillibrand's bill, version of the bill, she's recommending classified reports. How the hell is she going to run for president saying, oh, I want to investigate this, but you're too – you know, you're not in the need to know, American people. I may run for president, but you don't get to know what we find out about this. Well, if you if you want to run for president, uh, fine, and you want to handle it correctly, you 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 ask appropriately because we're talking about the, this is this is part of the intelligence appropriations bill. The public, you know, this is not in a bill, you know, for Facebook, and so you say. Bring it classified so that we can assess it. But of course, what is classified can be unclassified. And so after you assess it, you could then be instrumental and then revealing stuff to the public. Now you're, you're looking like a hero. But no, you don't take something of this magnitude and demand that the, the DOD send it straight to the public. That is what Rubio did. He did it for a reason. The DOD probably didn't like it. They gave us a seven-pager. wasn't significant. But the way it's supposed to be, classified to the, to the Congress, review it, take action, hold hearings, whatever, declassify as appropriate. So there's nothing unusual about this. But here's what happened. This is what's so cool, is this. The Department of Defense knows what's going down and knows where it's heading. And so – and for some time now, they, they've essentially acknowledged that they've thrown in the towel – so the question is, what did they do between now and the day that Biden finally confirms the ET presence? What they're doing is they're getting all dressed up, right, having their car polished, having it detailed, cleaned <laughs> up, right, and in generally trying to look as good as possible for the big event. And they want to arrive at that event with a pocket full of contributions that they have made. This is public relations. When you've been lying for 75 years and the lie is going to come undone, anything you could do. To how would you say soften the blow, get the public on your side? You do. And there have been many indications of this. And I've been talking about it for several years now, right? This is a public relations driven extrication project in which a lot of people, good people, are having to lie a little bit more to get out from a much bigger lie so that they can finally actually tell the truth. If it sounds convoluted, that's not my fault. And so here's what happened the DOD makes a brilliant move. They don't wait for 90 days from the Act, Senate, the Appropriations, the, the National Defense uh, Appropriations Act, to, to, to be passed. They go ahead and do it now. 
And so on November the 23rd, the Department of Defense put out a direct press release saying the DOD announces the establishment of the Airborne Object Identification Management and Management Synchronization Group. Oh, that's an awful title. That's it horrible. is an awful title. And, and I, one day I hope to talk to somebody that was involved in that because you know I'll be a big dude, come disclosure, and, and they'll tell me how the hell they came up with that. Point, don't, isn't it is, kind of like it's, it, it's like a wussy or something? You cannot pronounce it. I guess they didn't want it to be pronounceable so it wouldn't get too much traction. It's usual uh, Washington doublespeak. Uh, it, well, it's just a bad acronym, okay? That, that's how I see it. The name, though, I don't call it doublespeak. It's, it's not doublespeak. It's simply – it's a military speak. This is how they, they talk. It gives it an air of importance uh, and so forth. But the point is, is that remember Gillibrand said uh, this will be give, this information will be uh, provided – uh, to the UAP task force or whatever the DOD sets up. Well, this is what they set up. And they ran, They didn't wait 90 days until the, they went ahead and did it right away. Why? Because they, they look much better. This, this makes it look like them cooperation. No, we're not going to wait. We're not going to wait till I don't know, April of next year. We're putting it together right now. This looks good to the public. How are they right? funding this? If they don't have an appropriation, how are they funded? What slush fund are they raiding? The Department of Defense never has trouble funding anything. <laughs> okay. Worry. Besides, the initial setup, it, it's it's uh, mostly probably structure, you know, sign a couple of offices, move some furniture up the hall, whatever the hell. The point is, is that this this one day is going to be very big, but they they've essentially set up the entity that she wants them to set up to receive the reports that the Gallego wants to be delivered and the, Rubio. The basket. Now, they've, they've created the basket. Now let's, let's read this. I'm going to read this and help everybody understand. Cool. <laughs> it's not long. It's just, a press it's just a press release from the Pentagon. No mm. big deal. Hey, we've been waiting 75 years for this press release. Today, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, I got her into it. In close collaboration with the Director of National Intelligence, Averill, Averill, uh, what's Averill Haynes, Haynes, who just the other day at a gathering at the uh, National Cathedral. Yeah, I want to I talk about the National Cathedral separately. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah. she, she happened to mention that, well, you know, happened? it could be extraterrestrial. So she, she, she just happened to mention. Yes, yes, okay. Okay, directed the United uh, – the under. Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, that is the USDINS, to establish within the office of the USDINS the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, <laughs> AOI, MSG. One way to remember the a, a part of it is MSG, monsodium glutamate. So it's the AOI monsodium glutamate. All right, as the successor to the U.S. Navy's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. In other words, okay, we're going to set it up just as you ask in the Department of Defense. The AOIMSG will synchronize efforts across the department and the broader U.S. government. That's that a is, lot of synchronization. That, that, that is critical. That's critical. To detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in special use airspace, SUA. Now, why they put in special use airspace? 
obviously they're interested. Are they saying that if five saucers come down and hover over the, the Empire State Building, that's not a big deal because it's not special U.S. airspace? I don't think so. But they kind of put a little emphasis on it. And one of the reasons... Well, wait, that harkens back to 1952 when UFOs appeared over the White House in Capitol Hill and Truman denied, denied, denied. Uh, actually, it wasn't... Uh, let me get my dates right. Uh, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that would be kind of special use. But you want to know what special use Air Force could apply to? Nuclear weapons facilities. Mm-hmm. And, of course... I assure you, the Department of Defense knows that when the congressional hearings get underway, all those nuclear weapons tampering witnesses that have been trying to get their attention for decades, they're all going to be testifying on the Hill under oath. Uh, And this includes Air Force bases and what have you. Anyway, so they put that in there. And to assess and mitigate any associated threats to safety of flight and national security. Totally appropriate. Wait a minute. I I have another sticky question. Mm-hmm. Have we not bypassed the need for hearings at all? Because if Gillibrand, oh, no. hang on, if, if, let me finish, please. If Gillibrand is calling for an office and the Pentagon is responding with an office, the only reason you would have hearings is to get it elucidated publicly so you ultimately wind up with some kind of institutional government response, right? No. Well, if you're going to have hearings, right here. This is if, hang on, if you're going to have hearings, that means people are going to test, testify about classified stuff in the open. So where does exactly. Gillibrand's classified reports go? That's the second uh, – look, look, put a pin in that, and we'll talk about it as soon as I finish this press release. But I, I know what you're talking about, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. But let's get this press release done. It's not long. To provide oversight of the AOIMSG, the deputy secretary also directed – the USDINS, Intelligence and Security, to lead an airborne object identification and management executive council. That, of course, would be the AOI MEXCC. Oh, good God. The is, acronyms are. Which is, it's getting, it's getting out there. Okay. They're basically, they're, look, in, in some ways, in, in our military intelligence complex, the bigger the acronym, the more important it must be. And so maybe they're just trying to show, you know, our, our acronym is bigger than your acronym. The point is. So wait a minute. Does this executive council then report to the Secretary of Defense? Hang on. Set up this management executive council to be comprised of DOD and intelligence community membership and to offer a venue for U.S. government interagency representation. In other words, they're saying we're going to set up a broad spectrum interagency across the government structure, which includes a council as well as a synchronization group. That is called a working group, Mm -hmm. and all I can say is I knew about it before they announced it, and I'll say nothing more. Now, Now, wait a minute. Uh, For people like me who don't know the ins and outs of Washington, like you do, does this mean this working group will have, you know, the Secretary of Transportation, FAA, uh, uh, you know, uh, State Department, uh, NASA, means that within Biden. the Department of Defense, it'll have whoever it wants. Uh, outside of the Department of Defense, the working group may be combined to that. It might be confined to just military intelligence, but there's nothing to stop them from bringing in other entities that they consider appropriate. But it's a, a standard phrase to refer to, and these things could be two or three people to 50 people. The point is it's a standard phrase that something is going on. It's a big deal. 
we got a group. Uh, usually they form these a lot. You never know they exist. I mean, they're not, they don't really talk about it publicly. Nobody cares. They're going out of their way to let you know about this one. Second paragraph, incursions by any airborne object into our SUA, special use <laughs> airspace, pose safety of flight and operational security concerns and may pose national security challenges. Notice that they are saying national security. They are referring to this as a concern. They are not using the word threat. They are not overplaying that card. All right. DOD takes reports of incursions by any airborne object identified or unidentified very seriously and investigates each one. Yeah, I know. You've been investigating them for 75 years. <laughs> this decision is the result of planning efforts and collaboration conducted by the Office of the Undersecretary uh, of, of, of um, uh, Defense for Intelligence and Security. I, I need to find out the name of that person, and I will. And other DOD elements – and this is underlined at the direction of Deputy Secretary Hicks. Now, they mentioned Hicks in the very first sentence, which was today Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks in close collaboration. Why did they underline it down here? The only reason they underlined it is to make it clear that this is a big deal because the, somebody as high as Hicks is going to be essentially – uh, directly involved. Yeah, and it's two steps from the president. Pretty much. To address, I know, under Secretary Hicks, to address the challenges associated with assessing UAP occurring on or near DOD training ranges and installations highlighted in the DNI preliminary assessment report submitted to Congress in June of 2021. This is an error. This is a press release. They're not perfect. It's basically your PR people in, a, in an office there with windows. The report was delivered to Congress in March of 2021. The public report was delivered to in, 2020, in June of 2021. The report also identified the need to make improvements in processes, policies, technologies, and training to improve our ability to understand UAP. And finally, in coming weeks, the department will issue implementing guidance, which will contain further details on the AOIMSG director, organizational structure, authorities, and resourcing. This will go down in history is one of the most important press releases ever issued by anybody at any time. Now, of course, this stimulated a whole lot of response. Right? When, 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 when did this release get published? November 23rd. It's been out for 12 days. Yeah, okay. The internet doesn't need 12 days to react to something. No, it needs of course not. <laughs> And so everybody's jumping in with their theories and speculations and whatever, and the more upset you are with the military intelligence complex or anything the country's ever done that's bad, which is a lot, uh, they're going at it. They're ripping. They're tearing. They're barking. They're yelling. I get it. I understand. Okay. I don't have that luxury. I got to look at things based upon what I know, what's happening and interpret it without a lot of bias. And I have a lot of bias regarding the history of the United States, I assure you. But I'm trying to keep it out of this because that's not my job. Now, let's go to this article. For those of you that haven't heard of The Hill, you need to hang on. It has video on it with sound. I'm turning that off. Um, okay, so The Hill is, is a specialty newspaper and media operation. 
that essentially serves Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill, though it has value to anybody that wants to subscribe to it. It used to be nothing but a paper. I still think they publish it on paper. Mm-hmm. And you could not walk into an office that didn't have the Hill there. The, the other one is Roll Call. I think they're now combined, but Roll Call is still a separate entity. And these are the inside paper. Everything you, – you know, if you're on the Hill, if you're a staffer, if you're a member of Congress – Anybody that's involved in anything, lobbyists, what have you, you got, you got to keep on the Hill because they're going to keep you up to what's going on. So it's a very important – and it just happens to be, interestingly enough, the largest independent media venue network in the country. Okay. One of the writers – I draw your attention to him. I do hope I get to meet him soon. I'm reaching out you know, I'm a crazy political activist to see if I can get a launch at the National Press Club. We'll see what happens there. One of the writers, absolutely critical guy who has done tremendous work, is a gentleman by the name of Marek von Redingkampf. I think he's in his very early 30s. Hmm. Uh, served as an analyst with the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of International Security, nonproliferation, as well as an Obama administration appointee to the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, he's been to, I think, some war zones. He's he's uh, quite a fellow, and young, uh, incredible career ahead of him. He has been writing an extraordinary series of articles on what the hell's going on, and he's getting it right. Well, a couple of three weeks ago, I think he did this overview of the last seventy-five years that was brilliant for anybody not following the bouncing ball. If you go to my print media archive at paradigmresearchgroup.org, you can read all of these articles. But this is, I think, uh, the latest one. Let me see this latest one. This one came out – this last article came out uh, on the first, two days ago. I think it's this latest one. And uh, it's entitled, Ex-Officials Voice Deep Concerns Over New Pentagon UFO Unit. Okay. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's not a UFO unit, Marek, it's, but he doesn't write the, the headlines. Uh, most people know this. Most people, a lot of people don't know this. People who write articles and papers or opinion pieces do not write the headlines. Nope. They're written by somebody else. And this person said UFO unit. And this Which, by the way, I'm going to make a small prediction. It's going to be UFOs. UAP is going to fall and bite the dust. The people know UFOs. It's going to be UFOs. So I'm going to call that prediction and raise <laughs> it. Actually, I'm going to go all in on that prediction ah, okay. because one of the reasons UAP is so important and UFO has to go it's because UFO was a absolute the, the, the centerpiece of the whole ridicule project embedded in the truth embargo. You pick something, and, and you ridicule the hell out of it, and you pick something that people are going to have to use. You know, it's like the Nazis put stars on the Jewish clothing because, well, the Jews had to wear clothes, and so it immediately yeah. Stuck in them out. the ad world, it's called rebranding, but this is an inside oh, guy. Rebranding. This is, is an inside guy, and he used isolated. the term UFOs no. deliberately. So the reason UAP, the change to UAP, which was formally announced by Secretary Hillary Clinton on the Jimmy Kimmel show back in 2016, which I've been pushing for for, I don't know, 15 years, is that it allows members of Congress to put language into appropriations bills. It allows the Pentagon to respond to them with press releases and not have to use it. And so the reason UAP is here to stay is because that is the term that is separated from all the truth embargo ridicule that people can use with less chance that somebody's going to suddenly roll their eyeballs at them. So I'm afraid I'm calling you all in on that <laughs> and lose all your money. 
All right. Now, in this article, he covers a lot of territory. All right. Huge article. And I, I can't go through it all. But there's one part that I particularly noted. Uh, I'm going to go down here. Let me just pull it up. It won't take long. Uh, okay. In this paragraph, here's what he says. He's interviewed Elizondo, or at least he's been following what Elizondo has been saying very carefully. He says, according to Elizondo, we in the department, we in the quote Department of Defense are very good at addressing, meaning we, he formerly was, okay, you following me, are very good at addressing defined threats, whether it's weapons of mass destruction or terrorism or stabilization operations. But when you get to something that is ill-defined, where we don't know what it is, we don't know where it's from, we don't know what its capabilities are, we don't know what its intent is, and we don't know who's behind the wheel, that is a really tough topic to top tackle from a national security perspective. Okay, fine. And then we, we come down to this. Hang on. Uh, let me see. All right. Actually, that's enough. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Elizondo also expressed concerns over government transparency, stating that there's plenty of documentation sustaining that certain elements of the Office under, of the Undersecretary of Defense of INS have not been forthcoming. That's one of the reasons why there's a uh, Department of Defense Inspector General, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, here is what I'm going to say. This is, this is somewhat amusing. It's not amusing. But it is necessary, though I'd prefer it wasn't necessary. Let me make another – let me go all in on another bet, Dick. And remember, he's quoting Elizondo here. And you've heard Elizondo talk. Yeah, of course. You, you know what he has to say. Let me be very clear. Louis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, I am 99.9% certain, are – absolutely aware that this phenomenon is extraterrestrial, knows that the, the Department of Defense has known that for 74 years, going all the way back to Roswell, right? And so, wait a minute. So he's saying that, but when you get to something that is ill-defined, where we don't know what it is, oh, he knows we do know what it is. We don't know where it's from. We do know where it's from. We don't know, know that its capabilities are. Well, we obviously do. We've been filming them and watching them on radar for forever. We don't know what its intent is. Now, that's... Well, so this that's is Washington plausible deniability speak. They're going to pretend, oh, my God, look at that. We never knew any of this. Crap. It's not so much possible to ideally. The point is, is that Lou Elizondo simply can't come out and say the thing is extraterrestrial. Nobody can. Haspel can't. He can't. Woolsey can't. He knows. He knows they're real. Haynes uh, did. He can't. Ratcliffe can't. None of them can come out and flat out say there's an extraterrestrial presence. Haynes and brought it up specifically at the National Cathedral Conference. He did not say explicitly there was an extraterrestrial president. She alluded to the possibility that is not the same thing. So nobody can do that yet. And the principal reason is that they understand there's a process going on, which is in the best interest of the United States. And that process needs to be congressional hearings. For a lot of very good reasons, which then sets the stage for disclosure from the president. And it is not their job to tell the American people there are extraterrestrials here, particularly when they're working for government 
or if they are, were working for government and under an NDA. All right, just so we're clear, per- Steve, this is your analysis. Absolutely. Okay. And so the only person who has the job to tell the American people the extraterrestrial presence is true is the president of the United States, either before some other head of state does it or first. That's the only person. And so they have to play this game because four years after the New York Times articles, we still haven't been able to get congressional hearings. They could have happened right away, but the situation didn't allow for it. It was politically undesirable, and then the pandemic showed up. And so it's all been delayed, but these hearings are coming. And so they have to do this dance. And so when you realize what I just said about Elizondo, and so what Elizondo is doing there is he's being mendacious. Yes, of course. But what he's doing, as others are doing, is he's, he's alerting people to the fact that you need to watch carefully, folks. Uh, I know how the government has worked in the past. Past is not prologue, but this thing could take a nasty turn. Taylor, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah. And we've got one intriguing half hour to go. You're on the other side of midnight. This seems kind of appropriate, don't you think? Particularly in terms of last night. Let them know, Karen. Close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think. Upon the recitation we're about to say Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. We are your friends. 
And welcome back to the last half hour of The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning, with Karen singing in the background, calling interplanetary craft. You know, Steve, I just have this feeling, and I can't shake it, that all of these best laid plans of mice and men, and my audience knows the double entendre of that statement, are going to go by the wayside because whoever's out there, they finally want to communicate. Last night demonstrated overwhelmingly that they're not going to wait. So all of these best laid plans could be thrown into the ash heap of history if they don't move quickly. What do you think? Unmuting. Mr. Bassett. Sorry, Dick. I, I, uh, I'm old. Remember, let's always remember. I'm very old. <laughs> and uh, I, have to, I have to, it takes me 10 minutes before I know what city I'm in in the morning. Uh, yeah, look, um, I've said this many times that, uh, and I said it on the air, I've said it you know, the best I could. I, mean, I, I never get invited to the White House. I don't know why. Uh, the point is, is that I, I've said it clear. If you, if, you, if you wait too long, another nation is going to disclose ahead of you, and you're going to be second. And nobody remembers who's second. Nope. Uh, and you're going to lose a huge amount of uh, gravitas and, and, and political capital. And, you know, so, but, hey, the fact is, it, it looks like we're heading that way. Maybe we will be first. <clears throat> See. But, look, ultimately it comes down to this. How do you do it? Years ago, the Department of Defense spent millions of dollars with a you know, the top-of-the-line Washington, D.C. Uh, public relations firm for a contract, which I think lasts, I don't know, four or five years, in which they were tasked with trying assessing all the ways disclosure could happen, what could happen afterwards, how they should handle it and all that. And there was a, there was a public relations firm. And it may be they're putting some of that, the results of that, uh, of that uh, uh, project, uh, the report they got back that they spent millions of dollars on. Now, and so far, I like what they're doing. But it comes down to this. Something we've known for a long, long time, we've tried to advance, is that the way to end disclosure in a way that is appropriate, minimally disruptive, will be favored by the public and politically easier, right, is this. You hold congressional hearings, finally. The last one was in 1968. That was a long time ago, like 52 years. Mm. So you hold congressional hearings, but not one-day events with a couple of researchers and a few papers, and then tell everybody to go home. This has been wonderful, and give them some prizes or nice gifts as they exit the uh, the, the Congress, the, the Capitol building. No, you hold extensive hearings um, uh, of, uh, under the uh, appropriate committees by the appropriate committees which happened to be the Senate and House Intel and the Senate and House Armed Services, okay, coincidentally. Uh, and you hold these hearings for days and days, maybe weeks. And okay, weeks. Let, me, let, me, let me stop you there again because I'm watching, you know, I watch, monitor what's going on in the mainstream very carefully because that's the culture we live in. There is this extraordinary moving groundswell enunciated now vocally, verbally, openly in the last couple, three days. The January 6th special committee is going to hold open hearings beginning within weeks next year. That's going to take such center stage, it will take all the oxygen out of the room. Nobody will give a damn about UFOs 
unless you jump the gun. Somebody lands on the White House no. lawn, or there's a close encounter, or something happens in the air in one of these special access flyways. In other words, it has to rise to the level of a news event to require a congressional response. Uh, Dick, no, there's not going to be hearings this month, and there's not going to be hearings next month uh, for a number of reasons. The January 6th committee is simply one of them, plus the indictments start, haven't come down yet. Indictments are coming. It's going to be raining indictments pretty soon. And yeah, that's going to be very intense. And then, of course, Omicron, which is Greek for, oh, my God, is doing its thing now, and mm-hmm. millions, you know, hundreds of thousands more people are going to die. So it's, it's a problem. But I believe by the spring. Uh, that's March, only a few months away. Well, uh, we, uh, we certainly that's know. three that months. We, uh, in terms of where the January 6th committee is, mm-hmm. that's more, much more than enough time to get through most of this, and if not all of it. And secondly, uh, based upon what I'm seeing uh, in the uh, in, uh, the uh, pandemic world, uh, the vaccination schedule will continue, boosters are going, and we're going to see a much better place by March, unless a variant turns up. It's you know, killer. Uh, but I can't worry about that. Uh, based on what we see now, Omicron is a problem, but we are vaccinating. And so at least in the U.S., not necessarily all countries, we're going to be in a pretty good place. By well, now. we also have the Pfizer and the Moderna pills, which are a godsend. And we have that, too. So I believe that by about March, the, the ability to hold these hearings uh, will be uh, there, and we can do it now. So let's talk in terms of the March time frame. Um, so hearings are called. Any, any one of the four committee chairs could call a hearing, and they do this all the time, and they can set a date, a week, 10 days, 20 days, or they can call it the next day. They've done that too. But they're the ones – nobody else can call those hearings but those committee chairs. Right. president can't do it. DOD can't do it. No, nope, no. Nope. But we already have three committee chairs who are – or two committee chairs and one uh, committee member – who are calling for hearings, and there's others too, Carson and several others. So the idea of hearings is well in play, but again, there's other things uh, that are on the on the front of the burner, uh, front of the, you know, the front burners right now. So come March, different situation. No, so they call for hearings. Right now, first of all, they will be military witnesses because the the, the platform for these hearings is national security. If you're going to hold hearings on this something this controversial. It's got to be a basis that is politically appropriate and safe. Well, national security, of course. No one denies, anybody in this field, that the ETs are a potential threat. Even Greer would agree to that, I think. Obviously, they're a potential threat, right? So is your, your German shepherd that you've had for 10 years. One day, you could just wake up in a bad mood and try to rip your arm off. Everything is a potential threat. It's a legitimate, reasonable national security matter. That is the safe political thing. Secondly, you only want military witnesses like Fravor. Why? You don't want any problems with witnesses. Military witnesses have all signed up to serve, and they took an oath when they signed up. And when they sit down at the committee table, they will take another oath. Now they're double oathed. And so and, – and their careers are known, and we have a very clear background on all these people. They're not some civilian that's done some research. Yeah, so we're talking like, controllable hearings. We're talking about appropriate hearings that are <laughs> going to be well-received. And so military witnesses are what you want. You want lots and lots of David Fravers up there and nuclear witnesses and so forth. 
because they're just not going to lie. They're not going to lie, and the public knows that, right? Secondly, they're perfectly safe in a sense, meaning this. Any military witnesses that is asked a question that they cannot answer, all they will do is simply say to the member of the committee, sir or madam, I can't uh, answer that in open hearing. I'd be happy to answer that question in closed hearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's it. We move on. So now what you have is this process. It'll go on for days, which hundreds of millions of people, I can't imagine how many people are going to watch it worldwide. I assure you they will be televised. Of course. They would have to be. Otherwise, otherwise, why why, why bother? Watching this transparent process with military witnesses, um, and yet they're watching the Congress doing an appropriate job, not acting like fools, no clown show. This is a nonpartisan issue. And this goes on for days and days. And for a lot of people, they're hearing things they've never heard before. Right? Uh, pe- there are people that watch my citizen hearing on disclosure that heard things they've never heard before. And this is going to impress them. It's also going to raise their interest in the subject. And it's transparent, so it's going to be nice to see the government being transparent about something important. Now, after a certain number of days of this kind of testimony, which, by the way, will generally be positive, and and the members are conducting themselves well. Everybody's winning here, the witnesses, the congressional members, the committee chairs, the DOD, which, of course, is obviously being cooperative already. And so all of this is just one – Well, well let, me, let me stop you there again because against this backdrop, people will remember, wait a minute. They've been lying to us on this for 75 years. Why should I believe anything anybody's saying on this publicly in an institutional government setting? You know, Look at what's going on with COVID. Look at what's going on with the last election. You've got a huge part of the electorate that doesn't believe a damn thing that anybody in authority says. Whatever people are willing to believe, whatever situation they are in, and it varies dramatically, seeing a transparent process involving multiple committees, involving military witnesses with known careers under oath is going to be a positive thing, period. And the point of all this is to get disclosure done. Again, this is your analysis. This is my analysis. Okay, good. good. I'm really confident about it. And so after about so many days of these hearings, the president is will be watching, of course. In fact, everybody will be watching. At some point, the American public are going to say, my God, yeah, <laughs> what I'm hearing, uh, this phenomenon is extraterrestrial, clearly. Okay, fine. The president is in the same exact position. The president can then go before the public in a way not possible before, absolutely not possible because we haven't had hearings in 68 and those weren't, those were nothing, is, is this. I, uh, my fellow Americans, I have watched this testimony along with you for these many days. It is profound. I've discussed it with my uh, staff, with uh, my top people at the Pentagon as well as congressional leaders, and we have all come to the consensus. That what we've heard in these hearings confirms there is an extraterrestrial presence. In that instant, disclosure has taken place under President Joe Biden. And this government has been lying to you on the subject for 75 years. Will uh-huh. be the first question. To say will be the first it. question from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. 
it won't actually I, I don't I don't know if it'll be the first question, but it just won't be that difficult. In other words, it's, it's a look. Let me tell you that question is the there are a lot harder questions than that they're going to have to deal with in the post disclosure world, but not all at once, not on day one, but in terms of the answer to that question, yes, we are sorry that the government as and and Biden might even will say, well, I, I have come to understand, right? Biden has stayed out of this issue his whole career, even though he's been near it. But whatever. Yeah, I've only been a U.S. senator for 30, 40 years, and I yeah. just couldn't tell you. He stayed out of the issue, but, but whatever. I'm, I'm simply saying, whoever it is, it, look, it, it was necessary to misrepresent the reality of this for all these years for national security. And this policy, which <laughs> some pissant activists over in the National Press Building has called the truth embargo, um, this policy began at a time when we were on the threshold of what would either be World War III and nuclear or a nuclear arms race, which ended up happening in Cold War, and, and uh, the, uh, we, were, we were at the risk of annihilation at any time. And so therefore, what we knew about this was remain, remain classified. After the Cold War ended, it might have been a, a best, a best if something had been done sooner, but there were other things that happened. So you did not get the truth until today. Some of you are unhappy about that, but all I can say is that you've got the truth now. now. You've got the key truth. Now, we have more to tell you. Right? In other words, believe me, we're going to be able to reveal now that the fundamental statement has been made a lot of things. And everybody is going to be immediately interested in those new things. Not every egregious thing the government's ever done. There will be some that will like, be there. We know how to control gravity. We've got infinite energy at our fingertips. At some point, they may have to reveal if anti-gravity drives at 71 or something. And people say, well, why didn't it? Because it was part of the extraterrestrial situation, which was completely classified. Mm. But we could have used that anti-gravity. Yeah, some people get pissed. It doesn't matter, Dick. The point is we've got to get disclosure. And, 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 and for most of the last 75 years, the government com- concluded that, one, uh, we, sh- we shouldn't know because of national security reason. Maybe we didn't have a right to know, right, or a need to know. Uh, and also, it was going to be really tough to finally admit it. Well, fine. I get that. The point is, is that eventually it's going to come out. And so you can, you can do it the right way or you can do it the wrong way. All right. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> you've been cheating on your spouse for years and you finally decide to tell your spouse. And so you basically say, look, I've been cheating on you for years. You don't like a tough titty. All right. That's one way to do it. That won't go well. Here's a good way to do it. You take your spouse out to dinner, right? Wonderful place. Very nice. Very comfortable. You order the best food. And you start apologizing over the salad course. And you're still apologizing <laughs> by the time you get to dessert. I and can you tell you've never love. been married. Oh, my yeah, God. Profess your love throughout the entree. This is probably a better way to go about ending what was a very nasty. And in thing. both occasions, she walks out and files for divorce the next morning. So um, yeah, so if you don't I'm know women, you, you know, it's a bad analogy. Very bad. I said look, spouse, if I didn't say women. Look, look, okay? look. So the point is this. Let me interrupt because we don't have a lot of time it's left. It's got to be right? done the right way, and that's the right All right. Way. Your prediction right. is sometime this spring there will be hearings, right? I think the soonest it can happen will be early spring okay. because of the things you mentioned. I'm saying that it will never happen if this is the landscape because 
you know, the insurrection against the country and the fact that democracy is up for grabs and we've got proven documentation now of an actual coup with all kinds of people spilling their guts before the committee, that's going to obsess like Watergate only 10 times bigger the national landscape, the oxygen in the room, unless, here's the caveat, there is some kind of major precipitating UFO incident that Mm. demands public hearings a la the new Pentagon office, the New York Times statements, the political positioning of candidates. In other words, it, it, it needs a spark to get the hearings to cut through the other noise. There have been plenty of incidents that deserved hearings that ever got them because the infrastructure and the process leading to them wasn't wasn't there. You had the you had this Phoenix Lights events. You've had multiple incursions turning That's off. That's then. This missiles. is now. I'm talking about the next three four months. Oh, I'm saying. I'm, what I'm saying is this: is that I believe by early spring, the the, the deck will be sufficiently cleared. To move forward, and I'm saying right. no, 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 and no. And secondly, no. the, the to very, very clear dichotomy and opinions here. I think I think your audience has figured that out. Look, uh, you're talking about the, what what the country's going through. Let me make this point. After what the country has gone through for the last four years, uh, the precipitating event would be the hearings. Why? Because these hearings will completely cap- captivate the world's people. The focus on them will be global, massive, and it's positive. It's not about some awful, terrible thing like a coup or a pandemic or whatever else crap that's been going on, like a war here, a war there. It's about the process leading to the entire human race. Except learning you're this. talking about a subject that in these official press releases and in the language of the, of the bills is talked about as an intelligence national security concern. That is the process. But in people will get- hear that from the DOD, and if the DOD is concerned, it means threat is right behind. The issue of threat has been, been addressed repeatedly. Uh, I'm addressing it. Greer is certainly addressing it, as well as Elizondo. We know that the national security platform is the way it has to go forward, but that doesn't mean that it fully defines it. And and yes, it's possible that it could get hijacked by a group of warmongers. Suppose there is a group that does not want this to occur, as there have been for 75 years. Yeah, Do you don't suppose. you think they're going to try to throw every monkey wrench? into spinning it into a negative fear porn mode as opposed they've had, they've had four years dick and it's failed uh the best they could marshal was a group within the pentagon decided they wanted to see if they could screw with lou elizondo and he yeah but it hasn't been a national conversation when this happens if we get here what hasn't been a, what, what has then been a the, the whole ufo thing has not been a national most people are you kidding me the UFO is about the most national conversation going no, on. No, it's you can't not. Not it. among ordinary people, cab drivers, no, etc. Among, among ordinary people. Uh, no, it's not. It is not. I guarantee Look, you, it's not. Have you have you seen the polling? That's abstract. That's just that's polling means nothing on a you subject like this. 
when the rubber meets the road, the, there's no national conversation. If you're if you're saying there needs to be a national conversation amongst the intelligentsia and the no among general people, so they pay attention. That conversation <clears throat> literally would be launched by those hearings. When when those hearings begin, not only people will be watching them, but they'll be talking amongst themselves. And the, the frame will be will national security. But the most important thing I'm trying to get across here is that people are going to feel better about their government because they're going to be seeing a truth process unfold transparently, mm. transparently. But this is something huge. This is not some awful thing. This is about ultimately learning we're not alone in the universe, possibly learning we have technologies that could finally come out. It's, it's going to open doors uh, where the possible is impossible is possible. In other words, it's the door, it's the path you go through or the door you go through to get to the post-disclosure world. Obviously, I'm going to work very hard to get that concept out there. But let me say, people are going to be thrilled. They're going to be, it's going to be fascinating. Right? They're not going to be thinking about all the things that the government did. Or they're going to be thinking about, my God, what are you going to tell me next? What am I going to learn? And we need that desperately. We, it, it, the, the truth embargo is about there is a future. It's not, we're not going to be turned into a nuclear ash pile. We're not going to all die from the omega virus of COVID or just kill each other off because, well, politics has gotten so toxic. It's going to be about, wow, we're going to be introduced to some point. In some way, extraterrestrials, not, not in our bedroom at one in the morning, but possibly on CNN. So this positive, extraordinary paradigm shift, the biggest of all time, the human race can't get it soon enough. The murder rates are up. The suicide rates are up. The uh, medication uh, rates are up. Uh, you name it. Uh, things are falling apart. I get it. You want to put things together? You need to give the human race something positive and profound to look forward to not something awful to look back at, whether it's the Iraq War, the Vietnam War. See, I'm with you in wanting what you're saying to be totally, totally, totally true. Let's 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 end the show tonight because we've got about Mm -hmm. three minutes. I agree with you where we want to go. I agree with you that this subject alone maybe has the potential of unifying the country, if not the planet, against all kinds of incredible, horrible, fragmentary things that are going on. However, it is going to be introduced to the average American citizen as a national security issue. And that yes. frames the conversation for most people who Initial. think of, if you're old enough, you think of duck and cover, you think of Russians with missiles, you think of yeah. Khrushchev, the, 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 the fact we almost went to nuclear war three or four times during the Cold War because of UFOs spotted on the Muse radars, et cetera, et cetera. It's been framed as a potential threat. How do you unring that bell? Well, you hold hearings where people give testimony, truthfully, under oath. Who are military start... people. Yeah. So, well, they're not civilians. They're people. not academics. They're not ordinary Joe Blow that had this incredible encounter in a conversation about the future of the human race. You're talking military, military, military. Yeah, right. I'm retired. Most of them will be retired. It doesn't matter. People don't distinguish. Between retired. When these hearings are held, many of these witnesses are going to be asked directly, uh, you saw this, you saw that. Do you think the extraterrestrials behind this phenomena are an existential threat? And I predict the vast majority of the military witnesses will say no. There will be some that say yes. 
But I assure you, I've talked to plenty of them, and uh, I, they, they don't believe it's a threat. It's that simple. Hmm. I mean, they they can read books too. They can watch documentaries. They they're not they're not shielded from all of the evidence that's been amassed by the citizen science research effort. They're smart, and they they they're they're credible, uh, and they're probably not going to support a threat. Now, that doesn't mean there might not be an attempt by a certain group in some agency to suddenly I don't know hire a public relations firm and go out and try to sell a war against the ETs. It's sort of out there. I've got stuff that turns up on websites. I belong to a couple of groups. There's some people in there. They're just itching to go after the ETs. I, I get that. So what? The policy of the United States and the future of this planet is in the hands of essentially the collective actions of governments, not some cadre of people on Facebook unless, or somebody with a particularly good TikTok account. Unless you discount the ETs themselves. Again, they can step in any time, Dick. I just can't I, I don't talk about that because I have no information about that. I have uh, – th- th- look, the one thing that – I mean we do know some things about ETs, and one of the things we know, one of the most absolutely important things we know about ETs is on repeated occasions, they've turned off our nuclear weapons, and then we turned them back on. Mm-hmm. That is so profound. But now, the military one, interpreted that as a threat. Actually, the military said nothing at all. They wouldn't even acknowledge it happened, or the witnesses never have. They will soon, and most of these witnesses believe it's not a threat. They're saying this. If they wanted to, they could destroy the weapons. If they wanted to, they could force launch them. They could do a lot of things, but what they do is turn them off, and then we turn them on, and they fly, and they, and they fly off. Now, I, I interpret that this way. trying to tell us for a long time that this nuclear weapon thing is a mistake. Then you need to fix it. You think? Uh, why did they care if we fix it or not? That is the $64,000 question. I have my answer to that question. Others have their answer. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve. This has been a hell of an evening. Wonderful conversation. Yes, I've learned a lot. And uh, you are obviously going to come back as things develop because I can make one solid prediction that you and I will agree on. Things will develop. So, boys and girls, ladies and germs, as Jimmy Durante would say, that's it for this weekend. Boy, this has been one heck of a weekend. Next Saturday, we're going to do more transmissions, and we'll have the analysis of what happened last night. And God knows what could happen after that. So until next time, next weekend, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight until morning. Good night, everyone.